Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 47. Today's episode is the last episode in February. Um, I don't think I've talked about this yet on the podcast, but at the end of each month, uh, I send like a, a little recap, um, like a thoughtfully written recap to everyone on my mailing list. It doesn't go anywhere else. Um, and write about like a theme or a topic that I think has come up a lot in that month. And I'm really excited for the February recap um, because all of my guests this month have just had some really insightful thoughts about authenticity and what that really means and kind of, you know, whether it's fixed. Spoiler, we don't think it is. Um, and so I'm really excited to uh to be sending writing and sending out that recap. Um, so if you, if that sounds interesting to you and you'd like to, you know, have a little like summary at the end of each month, um, join my mailing list because, um, I actually put a lot of time into those and only the people on the mailing list ever see them. Um, so today's guest is Madison Can Can. And before I read their bio. Um, I just wanted to say I went to the Vagina Monologues last Saturday at Westminster in Salt Lake City. And on the program, there were um, each performer's preferred pronouns. And Madison was a performer in the Vagina Monologues. And their preferred pronouns are they, them. And I did not know that. So I just wanted to say that if I um, misgendered Madison in the interview, that I apologize for that, um, they prefer they, them pronouns. And so, um, I, hopefully I, hopefully I didn't, but if I did, then, uh, sorry. And I'm doing it right now. <laughs> sorry, Madison. Um, okay. That said, um, I loved interviewing Madison. I have been wanting to interview someone who does clowning for such a long time and have just been like fangirling over Madison for the last several, you know, probably half a year since I first saw their posts um, and profile on Facebook. Um, I think it's a really important medium that sometimes gets disregarded when we're talking about art. Um, and I don't want to do that because I think it's awesome and, uh, interesting. And yeah, like I said, just very important, um, culturally, politically, socially, um, really, really, really important. And Madison does like so much more. So, um, let me read Madison's bio now. Madison Cancan is a working clown, burlesker, puppeteer, drag thing, and regular weirdo based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. This last year solidified their position as someone who constantly finds their voice in their art, and now, well, they just can't shut up. Running into issues with the state, being censored publicly, and from other theater and dance companies, Madison is no stranger to fighting for her right to art. Good thing they've been through the school of hard knocks from the beginning. Otherwise, they would have given up the good fight and become a paper pusher instead of a pasty pusher. Politics, pasties, heart, and art all make up the rainbow cacophony that is this simultaneously loud and queerly silent clown. And let's not forget, if anyone can, Madison can can. You guys, it's my absolute pleasure to bring you this interview with Madison can can. Enjoy. Sometimes art feels like magic, pure, visionary, and sometimes it's brought to you in part by focus groups and algorithms. And the makers of art are no different. We're creatives, sure, but we're also salespeople. We need imagination and imitation. 
We need deep, meaningful connections. But we also have to network. Yep, even if you're an introvert. And that's my point. Balancing vulnerability with veneer is tricky, and it's a struggle we don't often share. So let's share. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by Wash Wizard. Wash Wizard is a cool little sphere that uses bioceramic technology to wash your clothes. I'm always looking for new eco-friendly products that are also useful and effective, and Wash Wizard definitely checks those boxes. A few months ago, I bought one for our home and we've been loving it, so I reached out to Wash Wizard to ask for a promo code for my listeners. Wash Wizard completely replaces laundry detergent and lasts for 1,500 loads of laundry. It's great for sensitive skin, it eliminates odor, bacteria, and mildew, and it reduces rust and lime buildup in your washing machine. Head to shop.getwashwizard.com and enter promo code ARTIFICE20, that's all caps, artifice two zero for 20% off your purchase today. always start with people at the very beginning and the first question I ask everyone is tell me what you were like as a creative child like what oh. was kind of the first stuff that you started doing that was creative when you were a little baby oh my gosh I love that question <coughs> so much Good. <laughs> um especially because I taught elementary school for so oh, long really? and I taught art oh that's so amazing. I specialized in childhood creativity Oh my gosh, tell me everything. <laughs> as a creative child, as a little mini Madison, I was super duper lonely, actually. Yeah. I would, uh, I had uh, one brother and he was not super social. Yeah. And then I, I didn't have a ton of younger. friends. Younger. Okay. I'm the oldest of okay. two brothers. I'm the oldest as well. Yeah, isn't that a thing? Uh, we kind of run the show, especially yeah. as sisters. Yes. Um, but I I was very lonely and very isolated, but it was never a problem. Everyone's like, oh, that's so sad. I'm like, actually, no, it's the exact opposite. It's the reason I am the way I am. I feel so the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I like to talk about it because, you know, I, I, I'm, I say this on the podcast all the time, but of course, like by the people I interview wouldn't know <laughs> necessarily, but... I, I think it's easy to look at adult creatives and just imagine that you were always this like artful little creature. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's true. I know I should like acknowledge for the listener, Madison and I are both recovering from colds. So we're like a little extra, extra, a little extra husky today <laughs> on the pod. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's not true. I mean, I think sometimes it's true. I think sometimes children are, you know, I mean, I think all children are creative. I think some children are extra creative. I think sometimes children are drawn kind of immediately to a certain medium and then continue doing that their whole life. But I think I think it's much more common that like your kind of creative exploration is much more like nebulous than someone might project looking at your adult self. Right. They don't ever see the the behind the scenes, the pictures that happened before, not only the pictures, but the situations. Yeah. Um, being an isolated child, it was a lot of um, finding out ways to come up with stories. Mm. And I've always been a storyteller. So in my youth, it was storytelling with stuffed animals, storytelling with Polly Pockets, storytelling right. with inanimate objects, rocks, trees, playing make-believe on a consistent basis. Yeah. And if I um, 
would get together with people. I usually was the ringleader trying to discover different worlds, talk about fairies, unicorns, yeah. I'm so magic. Like, the same with you there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what did you feel like the stories were like doing for you? They were, it was interesting because I didn't even consciously realize that that was weird or creative. It was just inherent. Yeah. I blame my father who was a storyteller as well and a yeah. writer and a teacher and Amazing. he would always ha come up with these incredible storylines and would just use his voice to transport his children to places that you could only imagine but you yeah. could see. It was almost as if in the car driving down the highway we were transported into other realms yeah there was like make-believe kind of generally in your childhood mm -hmm. um can you tell me about like I don't know your experience of being a creative as a child and having that um like reflected by at, at least your dad um and, and kind of maybe what what it in retrospect like means to you that you were that creativity was like modeled and encouraged it was everything. So my parents divorced when I was six. And my, my mother's not particularly creative, but she is an incredible support of creatives. That's cool. why her and my father worked well together yeah. um, until they got divorced. So my father's absence for a lot of my youth just made that connection grow even stronger and it yeah. made me miss it. And it made me have to develop it for myself because I could no longer rely on oh, I see. him for yeah. stories. So I would actually make my own worlds yeah. and I would have storylines that would run for years yeah. um, within my own head. Yeah. And so now that I'm older and I'm writing plays and every act that I perform has a story, yeah. it's not just, Oh, here's me looking pretty for pretty's sake. Yeah. Um, those are the least interesting and the most like uh, difficult acts for me to perform because yeah. they don't have a message and they don't have a purpose. Yeah. Um, I really love to have a purpose in everything that I do. Yeah. So being forced to develop my own storylines, my own yeah. reality, my own worlds infused itself into every practice that I'd yeah. ever done for the rest of my life, including now. And in fact, um, one of my professors to literally told me, um, in my master's degree, I'm an academic, of course, well, not everybody knows that, yeah. but that yeah. is who I am. Yeah. And they just keep telling me, you're too much of a storyteller. You're too much yeah. of a storyteller. And I have no idea how else to be. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just is. I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I don't know that I'm storytelling. I'm, I'm a singer and a songwriter, so there's definitely storytelling in there. And also I kind of feel like this podcast is like, um, it's not storytelling in the sense that like I'm preparing a story, but I'm, I feel like I'm gathering stories. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I think I felt as a child, I, I'm liking like this idea that some of that storytelling was like connecting you to your dad, like after he didn't live with you anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's probably really common or like if you're, if you're a, a lonely child, you know, those stories are kind of giving like a, a through line, mm -hmm. you know, connecting things and like giving you some, like you said, like some purpose. I, I definitely felt like that as a child too. So can you talk to me about how, like what other creative stuff did you kind of start doing that was maybe like more organized? Like were you doing um, like lessons or like choirs or? So as a youth, as a young child in elementary school, there was not a lot of money coming in. Okay. So I actually didn't do anything privately until high school. 
And it was my grandmother who paid for like my vocal lessons. And um, that was probably the only official lessons I ever had privately was vocal lessons. Everything else was in school. Um, I would say that just counts as standard, organized. Yeah. yeah I just mean, I mean, organized outside of like storytelling, you know, so even oh. like, like drawing, like what I mean, just, oh, okay. or writing, like writing things down, I guess maybe the word I should use is like, just maybe more tangible, like oh, okay. a- existing kind of like outside of your imagination. What did you start kind of doing? So I'd always been an art kid. So okay. theater, um, dance, music, every time I had a chance to take a creative class in the school, I did, yeah. but there was never any time after school to take anything privately. So after school, I was constantly, even throughout my teenage years, instigating. Yeah. Instigating with my friends, like planning, planning, producing, producing. Yes. (laughs) It never, never occurred to me that this was not something everybody did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you doing visual art as like, like maybe Mm pre-teens? What kind of visual art were you doing? I was always a painter. Cool. So before, I, you know, it's interesting to know that I'm a, stor- a storyteller and such a dancer now. Yeah. And all these arts have always been in my body and in my in totally. my world. But for the longest time, I considered myself a visual artist first. Yeah. A painter and a drawer. How? Um. Tell me more. Like, how did you? Um. I don't know. Did you have to like ask for supplies? Like, I mm. I I'm curious about like how. A, a child starts kind of like identifying as an artist. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Cause the, cause those are stories too. Um, and so I always like to know, like, you know, were other, were adults in your life encouraging you, like giving you markers and pencils or like what, what happened? My mother, like I said, is not a very creative person herself, but she was a great support. Yeah. So in kindergarten, she bought me a light up plastic desk Amazing. and it was everything it was the best thing I had ever gotten and it was a Christmas present and changed my world it was my artist's desk and I could trace and draw and do and be and work and color and yeah it was everything to really like build that identity and harness it Mm -hmm. when do you maybe you don't remember but when you got the desk did did it feel like you were already like projecting into the world like I'm an artist or do you feel like it was like your mom saying like I think you are creative you know what I mean like which direction was that like communication going she just listened she was always just listening and watching and she for a while there she tried to curb me into uh what she thought would be easier for people to swallow Mm. um for a while do you want to she, be more specific about that? Yes. She would uh, dress me in certain clothes sure. and try. She just knew. She knew that I was a weird child. Yeah. She knew that I was not normal. And she knew that being abstract as a human abstract. being yeah. was going to be difficult. Yeah. So she was trying to protect me. And it didn't last very long. Yeah. Because my father has always said, and my mother caught up. You are your own person. Yeah. You came out your own person. So you are never going to be anything but yourself. Yeah. And no matter what we did, what we said, what we tried to encourage in you, you were just you. So as far as like buying clothes, you wouldn't wear anything unless you had picked it out. Yeah. As far as like fitting into a mold, you, you just couldn't. There was nothing about you that fit. Yeah. And... It, 
you know, it was sad because there yeah. was a lot of like misunderstanding and a lot of bullying, yeah. but you just, as an individual, yeah. they want to put you in a box. Yeah. And as an art educator, I saw that yes. and I refused to, to grade. I never graded one thing yeah. in an art classroom. I absolutely refused. I said, this is not this practice. Yeah. My practice of art yeah. is to encourage expression totally. and to encourage process. If you make me grade this, that is the exact opposite it's of opposite. everything we're trying yeah. to do. So I never graded anything. And anyone that stood outside of the box was appreciated. Yeah. And I always told all of my kids that they were artists. Everyone was an yeah. artist. I feel the same way. I talk to my, I teach kids too. Um, I I talk to my students the same way. You know, it's so, I, I was talking to my therapist the other day. So my, my mom died two years ago, almost like exactly. And she was like a clinical narcissist and, um, it, it was extremely unsupportive of me being a creative child. Wow. So I was, I was talking to my, my, my therapist. Um, she listens to my podcast sometimes and she asked me in one of my sessions, I think it was like two weeks ago. Um, like, Emily, how does it feel to you to like interview so many people when you ask them about their childhood and they say like, my parents were really supportive because like, it's so not the experience I had. But like the way that it makes me feel is so just like, I'm so glad. It makes me f- feel, I also kind of feel like I think about my parents and think like, clearly other parents are capable of like accepting their abstract child. Yes. Um, And you should have been able to as well. But I love, I love talking to adult creatives who had that experience of their parents being like, wow, you're something. And okay, let's, what can we do? Right. How can we let you be like this something that you are? Um, And, you know, as you're talking about like, there's still being kind of like bullying and misunderstanding, like, of course. And like how, how like amazing to like not be having that at home. Um, but I'd love to hear you talk more about like, I have so, I, okay. I, maybe we'll come back to this. I, I want to, I want you to talk about like how that affected your like child identity being conceptualizing yourself as kind of abstract or knowing you were different. But first let's talk more about this art desk. Yes. (laughs) Let's go back to your desk. So, um, can you just talk to me about like what you were drawing, what you were painting, how you came up with ideas, like what your kind of ideas of like boundaries were, how you were challenging yourself, maybe between the ages of like when you got the desk and maybe when you're like, you know, 13 something yeah so it's very interesting to reflect on the things that impacted my life things that um stood out the most to me were this desk my toy box and an ab anything with abcs anything with letters like letters anything with letters love language too so much and it was just these and Everything that was play school or plastic in the 90s was red, yellow, and blue, the primary colors, and just very simple and very basic. And this desk, I don't know. I just remember loving it more than anything I'd ever I'd ever had. And I would draw, I'd color mostly, but the things I would draw my grandmother, I would always send to my grandmother and she would save. So she is the yeah. majority of my childhood drawings. That's a lot awesome. of them were uh, portraits yeah. of my family or 
it's weird to say this because it was like a premonition even yeah. as a youth clowns. Yeah. I would wow. draw clowns as cool. a child. I was obsessed with the circus. My mother yeah. took me to the circus and all I could do was draw clowns the and balloons. circus is such a f- like fantastical place. Mm-hmm. Like so I, magical. I just, a lot of like um, fodder for like a childhood imagination. Mm-hmm. I Colors. Love, I love that you knew that your grandma was going to save your work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like even that is such a that says so much to a child of like, this is, I mean, this is a small thing, but like, you know, I do songwriting and arranging with my students and then I, I will perform their arrangements and songs at my solo gigs. And, I, you know, cause my students don't have like that many opportunities to be performing cause they're children. But I tell them like, you know, I performed your original song at my gig last week and they always seem so, you know, but I tell them like these things that you make, they deserve to like live in the world and they deserve, they are art. Um, and I, th- I think that is just everything. Like telling a child, like your child art is art. Like there's probably going to be a time in your future where you'll look back and be like, Oh, my technique could be, you know, whatever, like this is a child's art, but like it's art. Um, and I think that I imagine that communicated a lot to you about the value of your creativity. It did, and it transferred to my students because every year I made a practice of buying one art piece. And I wasn't just going to buy it. I was going to spend money. So for like an eight-year-old, me being like, I'm going to spend $50 on this colored pencil drawing. Yeah. Change their world. That Totally. That's this identity stuff, like this kind of like ownership stuff that I get so interested in, which is why I like to talk about how you go from like imagining to like when I say more organized, I mean like this thing of like, I made this thing, I mail it to my grandma. Like that seems organized to me. And that seems like ownership. Like it's, it's like you starting to kind of have this moment of like, Oh, this is a thing that I'm making. This is a thing that has value. Um, and then kind of going like, what else can I do? Like, how can I like stretch this creativity? So you know, what's important in your childhood. And like, so I'd love to talk about the years before you're like an adolescent brain. Um, what, what else did you do to like cultivate this creativity? How was it informing your identity? I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop creating and drawing and working and storytelling. It was just a constant, constant, like almost like a loss of reality really. Mm. In fact, um, I was not very good in school. Okay. Because I was elsewhere. Yeah. And uh, it affected a lot of my youth because there was a year in sixth grade where we were supposed to be doing this country report. And uh, I had Russia and I just didn't do my work. I just didn't, I I couldn't figure out a way to write a report because when I was home, all I wanted to do was be in my alternate reality. Right. And so they would keep me inside and I lost a lot of friendships and it made me even more isolated and it made mm. me even more weird because yeah. I was the only kid that had to stay inside because I was the only failure. How old were you, did you say? About, uh, this is sixth grade. Yeah. So yeah. like 10. Um, maybe we're skipping 11. ahead. I mean, I try to be chron- chronological just for like my own keeping track of what we're talking about, but in now you're an academic you just finished your master's degree congratulations thank you um do you feel like that problem of like not knowing because i mean certainly russia has so much like art yeah they're i i have to imagine they're like 
could have been a way that you could have been like psyched about that project. And I, I'm imagining that like you've now figured out how to be psyched about that project. Um, can you say like maybe what the thing is that like allows you to like marry your creative mind with like academic pursuits? So what happened was after I kept failing and failing and failing, um, I learned how to balance both my imagination and academia. Yeah. So in junior high, I made a distinct effort to get all A's and I did from then yeah. on. I was just a, an incredible student, yeah. always top of my class, always like 3.9, yeah. 4.0, like throughout yeah. um, middle school and high school. Yeah. And it, it made me very anal and very like sad. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> But I had I had to touch base with reality. I was so far into fantasy mm -hmm. that I literally was lost. Yeah. A lost person um, as a youth. And it made me incapable of connecting. Yeah. So I'm really grateful to academia for grounding me. Wow. Um, and for teaching me a system. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan, honestly, yeah. Yeah. of um, the way academia is a system. I'm not into yeah. that, but what I am, the reason I am an academic is because I am an educator yeah. and there are certain aspects of education, um, that are so beautiful and that you only get once you reach a certain standing in the academic world. Right. Cause once you're, <coughs> once you're, um, to a certain point in your degree, all of a sudden you have jurisdiction and right. you have the ability to dictate what you do and what you don't do. Right. And so you get autonomy back. Right. And for me, I just want to see autonomy braided throughout the entire process yeah. and not uh, saved for once you're like a master's yes. student. Yes, because that by then, like so many types of minds have been like not weeded out, but like forced out, mm -hmm. like, you know, um, yeah, I really agree with that. Okay, I'll have more questions about that when we get into teen years. Um, okay, so I know you do tons of art now. When you were like when you were a child, you were what else were you doing? So you were drawing. Were you working with textiles at all? Nope. Okay, that happened later. Uh -huh. um, singing and dancing. Yes. Um, were you making up like were you were you child playwriting? Were you doing like skits? I and was. Little plays? Yeah, and I was all the characters. Cool. So what would happen is I would have fairy tales and I would be the king yeah. and the queen yeah. and then I'd lay out my stuffed animals and they'd be my fairy court and I would puppet with these fairy court uh, personages yeah. and they'd all have their own storylines. I would have um, my bears each have a, and I lied. I did used to work with outfits and make dolls. Yeah. I lied. Okay, cool. I uh, would create costumes for each of my stuffed animals cool. and so like my bear lemon drop was a detective and she was like sherlock holmes and what she would working discover like, how did you what do was it? going on in stuffed animal yeah. land. Oh, i love it um i would do it with felt mostly cool and i didn't have any i didn't know much about sewing um i didn't have a sewing machine until much later so it was a lot of hot glue and i burned myself extensively i did um, a lot of hot gluing and felting yes. as a child too why was felt available to us i i think because it, it was uh cheap and expendable yeah. and easily accessible How and soft are you? 29 okay i'm i'm turning 32 this year oh wow so i'm like so many of these things you're saying i'm like i we, I feel like we were having similar, similar like, experiences. uh, types of input or so, you know, um, 
yeah, felt and hot glue were, were definitely thing. mediums that I experimented with as a child too. And they're I, still, they're still yeah. my primary modes of expression, honestly. Cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I just, I want to make sure that we have like the dots to connect like to the other dots. Um, so any other like mediums, like were you writing poems or like, I On mean, occasion. Okay. On occasion, everything, a little bit of everything. And who were you performing your plays for? Myself. Okay, cool. Yeah, great. Okay, Um. anything else you want to say, like, in terms of, like, these kind of, like, not identity things, like, kind of tangible, like, what were you doing pre-teens? Anything else we've missed? Because you're doing so much now. That's yeah, why I'm like, so much. I want to, like, make sure that, like, I catch the beginnings of these things. Yeah, it's it's honestly a lot of my childhood is very spotty because I really yeah. wasn't here. Okay. And I explain this to a lot of people. People call it disassociation and things like that. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of I'm just so every, you know, you know, I'm a little yeah. bit woo. Yeah. A little bit out there. And it's so, I think it comes so with the territory. Yeah. Um and so there's like a lot of moments that I just don't recall because I wasn't really here. Yeah. And even like there's all of these people that will be like, oh my God, I dreamed of you. I dreamed of you. I dreamed of you. I'm like, yes, that's very common. I've always been this person. Even as a youth, huh. my friends would be like, I had a dream about you. Really? What? Do you, tell me more. Like, what do you think? Like, what are your, I mean, like I said before, like, you know, what's interesting about your childhood. So like now that we kind of have some of these, like some of the things that people could see from the outside, you know, and I, I don't mean that people were seeing, I just mean you were drawing like these kind of tangible things. Um, I'd love to know more about like what was going on internally and then what was going on with like how you interacted with the world um, insofar as you can kind of relate it to like how you started conceptualizing yourself as a creative. I didn't really. Okay. It was just it was I didn't like initially when they would ask me what you want to be when you grow up. I was I would always say an astronaut. Yeah. Because I, mean, I was not here. Yeah. I related to the moon and I related to the stars and I related yeah. to space because ev everything on the world didn't make sense. Yeah. Um, in fact, there was just so much here that didn't make sense. Yeah. Um, like, that I really couldn't stay here. I really yeah. couldn't vibe with school or with like yeah. the way things ran, which is why my parents, you were just yourself. Yeah. No matter how we tried to curb you, you weren't normal. I yeah. was just an alien what can you tell me like to the best of your ability to like remember like what you think you like seemed like to other people strange like like what why Very strange and a yeah. target for sure yeah um I was bullied a lot yeah and it was just one of those things where I didn't dress right I didn't look mm -hmm. right I had big teeth it's just weird I was quiet yeah um I drew too much I was I was too quiet yeah um you couldn't socialize couldn't play all I wanted to do was swing again because yeah. like I had to be off the ground I had I to see. I had to be in the air yeah I had to be anywhere else that wasn't on this planet I was not grounded in yeah. any sense of the word and like my bed was even a bunk bed and I had to yeah. be high I had to be as close to the sky as possible yeah. at, at any time of my life what did that feel like like in your mind like what were you I mean I know it like retrospect is so tricky it is um but like to the best of your ability to remember like what it was like f from your eyes like what what was going on like how were were you 
were you telling, like, how aware were you that you needed to be off the ground? I or wasn't was it, until okay. this is retrospect. Okay. Um, cause so what, it was just the way I was. What did it like, what were you kind of like thinking about or like, were you, maybe I want to ask, like, were you aware that like you were having like problems relating and like, yeah, it just wasn't, it didn't like bother you. No. Yeah. Even, uh, even the bullying didn't register. It just was, you were like so disconnected to it. Yeah. Um, but, and it didn't, it doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. Sure. I don't really remember crying about it, yeah. but I do remember sitting and like having people make fun of my teeth, for instance. Yeah. And just kind of witnessing that. Yeah. And not understanding, literally not comprehending yeah. the, the idea, the, I'd not comprehending yeah. the idea of cruelty. It did not make yeah. any sense. So even when they would say these things, my my brain didn't process it. Yeah, it hurt because my my heart felt it. Totally, but the brain logically couldn't process how someone could say that and feel okay. Yeah, um, and definitely it was very have. sensitive, but not really here. Sure, I I get that. Like I I definitely have like early childhood memories of that kind of feeling of like confusion. Like mm -hmm. this doesn't feel good, but like I don't understand. Like yeah, I mean, I think I, I also, I've, t I've told people before, I think I was a child that was like, uh, I feel like I was dropped in the wrong environment. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like I was dropped in the wrong family and like was kind of aware of that pretty early, like kind of aware that like there was something different going on about like how I was seeing the world, but also feeling like just very confused about how other people could like why they would make the decisions they were making like and not not going like oh well they're doing this because I mean not that any child can but like I remember thinking like I don't relate to like this pattern of motivation that this other person seems to have yeah um so yeah I mean is there anything else you want to say about like what your identity felt like as a youth a as a child yeah hmm or like how you were starting to kind of think of like who I am. I don't know. It was very disconnected. I've told a lot of people that I only just arrived maybe five years ago yeah. when I got into my body. Yeah. When yeah. I danced. Oh, so important. Dance brought me into my body because I always danced, but I didn't dance yeah. like I dance now. Yeah. Um, I didn't dance with every piece of me. I didn't dance with my heart, mind, soul. I didn't yeah. dance with my story. I didn't dance with yeah. the human condition. I didn't dance with eye contact. So it really was burlesque that put me back on the yeah. planet because most of my life I was very not here. I'm so excited to hear you talk about that. Um, I have maybe just one more question. Yeah. In retrospect, why do you think that you felt like you needed to be like, that you weren't grounded or, or what, like in retrospect, what do you think was going on? I think a lot of it was, well, you know, loss, you know, not knowing. I think I was, I think it was pretty grounded before the divorce, yeah. but the divorce and that loss. Yeah. And so I think a piece of me like was always with my father. Yeah. And yeah. a piece of me was always with my mother. So you had to remain kind of split and in limbo. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's why when people say things like, I dream of you, I yeah. say, yes, I do that. Yeah. Because yes. I'm floating around. I am. I'm, yeah. Pieces. Yeah. And it's so strange because the majority of times that people tell me these things, I'm traveling. Yeah. So I'm gone. 
yeah. I'm out of the state. And that's the majority of the stories that come in. Multiple, three yeah. or four people will message me when I'm out of state. Last night you were in my dream. What were we doing? Oh, biking, hiking, yeah. Yeah. swimming. You're in the mountains. Very normal everyday yeah. things. But they're, it's usually when I'm out of state. So I've always yeah. done this. Again, I'm very woo, but like yeah. I am a dream walker. And I, I think so, I've yeah. just trained that way since I was a child. Yeah, okay. I like this word that you just used, trained. I was going to ask, do you feel like this is this thing, like, I'm, I don't know, would you call it like a gift or like mm -hmm. just a, um, both a curse yeah. as well. I, or I was going to say like, or like a condition, you know, like not in like an illness kind of a way, but in just like a, do you feel like this is like a condition of your being in a way that like it would have been no matter what the circumstances, or do you feel more like the fact of your parents divorce, like kind of unlocked a thing? I, I think what I'm wondering is, mm -hmm. do you feel like this is something that is like, human and it's just a matter of like circumstances like kind of letting it be a thing or do you feel like it's like a you thing I feel you know there's a lot of research I've done in, into dreams because I didn't uh, as a youth uh, as a child I did not dream the way we see reality until I was 13 years old yeah every dream I had as a child was a painting wow. stained glass cartoons yeah it moved like when I would paint with watercolors, it would move like water. It would move like acrylics. It would move like watching my grandfather paint oils on a canvas. Mm -hmm. I didn't dream reality. Yeah. I really wasn't here. Yeah. So, you know, as far as like a human condition thing, doing research on dreams and like being a woo person and like learning about projections and yeah. learning about lucid dreaming. Yeah. It's a human thing. It's a human thing. But you just like, but I were just able it. to do it as a child or uh -huh. yeah, I don't know if I'm using like the right verbs, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm still learning, you know, and there's, there's been certain moments in my life that are inexplainable. Like, yeah. uh, partners, lovers of mine have, I've called them and I said, you know, I need to tell you, so I don't know why I need to tell you this, but we've ha I've had these dreams, these recurring yeah. dreams yeah. and I'll explain these dreams to them. And they're like, there's no way you can know that. Yeah. That that ha like yeah. they're usually my ex lovers that when yeah. these things happen, yeah. but they tell me that I dream their reality or I've dreamed their yeah. dreams. There's no explaining. This is yeah. multiple occurrences. Yeah. Where even now, like last week, my lover called ex lover called me and said, "Did you have a dream of me yeah. like you used to?" Oh and I my said, gosh. "No, yeah. I haven't had a dream of you in a long time." He's like, "Oh, I just you used to do that a lot, and I just." I had a dream of you and I thought yeah. that you would know. I said, yeah. wow. not this time, yeah. not yeah. this time, but it's very common for me to project into yeah. other people's dreams. So, I mean, I'm just like, I want to ask again, like, do you think, do you feel like, do you feel like there's something kind of like unique about you that like, these were things that you were experiencing as such a young child? Or do you kind of feel like all children, like, I just, I'm just curious, like, I mean, I always like to ask creatives and this is like, I feel like this is creativity too. Um, like, you know, are creative children like special in some way? Is a child that's like in dreams special? Or do you feel like this is just like, do you feel like it's possible for like all people? Like, what are your, what are your like beliefs as an adult about like, you know, like which things are kind of just like this child just is going to be a creative or... Hmm. From I, teaching I children so how to be creative for years, it's um, 
Hmm. I get so torn about it because I like to believe that everyone is like capable of like really special, unique, like amazing. Like everyone has like a contribution that is like big and wonderful and like mysterious in its way. Um, I agree with you. Yeah. And a hundred percent. I just believe that a lot of it, um, there is with, with children, they are so, so inclined to play. Yeah. They're so, it's so naturally in them that all you have to do is suggest there's a, a, like the softest thing. For instance, when I taught theater for years, we are all cats and they'd instantly be cats. Yeah. We are all cactuses. They'd instantly be cactuses. All right. Yeah. We are now going to go on a pirate ship and we are going to create a scene wherein the pirates don't know what island they're going to next. And you guys have to describe the island yeah. through conversation. And it's amazing to me how the, even the slightest suggestion, almost like hypnosis, could create a world for these children that was not there before. And I feel like every single human being has that capacity. Every single human being yeah. has the capacity to fall headlong into creativity. It's just a matter of remaining open and everything on this planet is made and created to close you. Yeah. Because they don't want you to be creative. The system yes. doesn't want you to succeed in creativity yeah. and wants you to be a robot and a cog. Yeah. And so that's a lot of pressure and it's also a lot of fear of not yeah. fitting in and we're programmed to fit in because we are a tribal species. Right. And so when your tribal ways of life no longer exist and your the tribal community way we used to be as human creatures has now been consumed by what the society we live in now, which is a machine. Yeah. We we are we, super systematic. Super yeah. systematic. I mean, those yeah. programs are still in us. We're still biologically driven to fit in. Yeah. And so what it becomes is it becomes a conscious decision to fight and yeah. not everyone wants to fight. And that's where in creatives thrive or die right. is yeah. in that decision yeah. to become a warrior and not everyone yeah. wants to, and I'm not here to shame anyone sure. into being or not being an artist, yeah. but I believe the only artists that truly succeed are the ones that are fearless. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I, you think that second, because I've had this conversation with, like if, you, if, if anyone listens to the back catalog, this conversation, it happens. Because I get obsessed with it. I mean, I kind of, I mean, as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking like, I'm having maybe this, I don't know that it's a new thought, but like, I mean, I'm certain that if like I as a child had been raised by artistic people I would be much more I would present like much more woo than I do I think it's in there though you know um but I was raised in a I was raised in a home that was extremely systematic extremely structured and my creativity had to like <coughs> go into hiding sometimes mm -hmm. or it had to get sneaky which is why like you know I I was a was a really good student and I think I think the only reason that that happened for me was that I forced my creativity in there. Like it was where it could live, you know? And I, I like, I got really creative about like math, you know, like oh. I just, I made it fit in there. Cause like it was the place it was allowed to go. 
Um, and so like I was, you know, this really internally creative person, but like manifesting in, ex in extremely like in a way that would look very not. You know what I mean? So I, I get stuck on these two points. I think on the one hand, there's this idea that, it, that some children are just born extra creative or kind of extra in tune. And like, I can accept that idea. Like, I think whatever. Sure. I also sometimes think like all people are just born very magical. Uh, and then like, it's a matter of what happens. And then like, sometimes I think creativity is one of those points. Like creativity can allow you to keep that magic into your adulthood in a way that sometimes you don't get to. And then I also think there's this second point that you were talking about where it's like, everyone's creative, but like, then there's this other thing of like, do you want to fight? Choice. Yeah. It's all about choice. And I feel like, you know, <laughs> it's like the talent argument. Yeah. You know? Totally. What do you think about it? I think talent is super silly. Yeah. I, I think agree. that um, my entire life I was told I was talented. Oh, Maddie, you're so talented by my grandparents, by my mother. Uh, my father wasn't really that way. Yeah. You know, he wasn't. It's amazing that he wasn't. He, because he knew. Yeah. Um, he knew that that not wasn't. not a talent question. It wasn't the, yeah. that wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think it uh, takes the, something the, away from someone to it tell takes, them they're talented. It, it, correct. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I never, ever said that in my classroom. Yeah. I never said, you know what? Charlie or Stacy or Ashley, you are so talented. I never said that. I said, you work so hard yeah. on your craft. Yeah. And that is what makes you a brilliant artist yeah. because you have to recognize the work. Someone can have all yeah. of the talent yeah. in the world, but if they're not yeah. willing to work and fight, I mean, it's yes. not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And so I believe everyone is inherently creative, but it's not a talent question. It's yeah. a, it's a fight. An, an, or question. an openness question. But do you think that second piece, um, whatever, whatever it is, um, do you think that maybe there is like a predisposition of some humans to fight. Like, is, mm. is that thing really a choice? I think I get this obsessed is what with I this think. question. And it's a great, it's a great uh, question to get obsessed with. Yeah. I believe that um, a predisposition to fighting, I, it's a hard thing for me because I think that the situations that are presented to us throughout our lives more than a biological predisposition makes yeah. a, makes us who we are. Yeah. So for instance, if I had never been teased or challenged or yeah. faced with these things, yeah. I would never be who I am today. And I yeah. wouldn't be the person that's just like, no, Utah, I'm going to yeah. do what I do. And this is how I'm going to do it. And you're going to yeah. pay attention um, without those constant battles in my childhood right. i don't believe it's a biological predisposition i do believe that it's a, a, like a conditioning a conditioning yeah yeah and yeah. and not only a conditioning of like your social environment but also the way that you as a person condition yourself yeah if you like i read and i train all the time right everything that i'm interested in I am constantly reading, researching, working on, and thinking about, and talking right, about. Right. I never can stop talking. I'm yeah. always talking or teaching about the things that, that I'm most curiosity. interested in. When I try to like trace back my creativity 
because there's no explanation for it in terms of like environment, you know? Mm, Interesting. And then, and that's part of the reason why I get obsessed with this question. Cause you know, as a teacher and also like, I think I grieve the lack of creativity in my family, Mm. like in, in my parents and Mm -hmm. in kind of the community I was raised in. And, and part of the reason I get obsessed with this question is I want there to be more of it. And then when, when I think about, the fact that I as a child had no reason to be creative, like there's no explanation for it. Um, then it's easy for me to think like, this is genetic. Like this is just something I was going to be creative no matter where I landed. And then I think that's kind of a hopeless thought. Like I don't like thinking that. Cause then I think like, I can't teach it. <laughs> you know, Like I couldn't teach it to someone or like, I can't um, encourage it in like, other adults. I can't encourage it in my parents. I can't encourage it in like these structures of religion that I was raised in. Um, <coughs> these like structures oh my, of like, that. yeah, I mean, that's why I feel like, I feel like my guess is that our two like souls are very similar and mm-hmm. we had very different like home environments. And, and then I think like, um, you know, this, this, um, like stubbornness persistence with which like I had to stay curious it was not it didn't feel like a choice to me like I felt like that curiosity was like put on me like I was a curious child I'm a curious adult and some people like are not I and I don't know if they never were or if they just aren't now you know which is why I wonder like is that curiosity like can you teach it can you like yeah what, what are you what are your like beliefs about that so it's interesting it's interesting. This is so recalling and thinking about my youth. Um, I lost my creative self for many years. In the, in the teens? Um, mm, not so much in the teens, actually, like in my early 20s. Even okay. while I was teaching art, yeah. I was not doing anything for myself. Yeah. So I lost all of my, all of my desire to be an artist into the system because right. I was giving it all away to my children. Yeah. And, uh, I totally that was relate to that too. I, I had so a period difficult. of that as a music teacher as well. Yeah. Of like, it's all, all this them. giving like, and there's, there's nothing creativity for creativity around. It's just not like, for yourself. Yeah. And so I really lost myself yeah. for years. Um, in early college when I, I, I was such an artist in high school and I got the majority of scholarships that I got were art based yeah. off of my paintings actually. Cool. Wow. Um, and I got a few academic scholarships and everyone asked, Oh, you're going to pursue art. And I said, no, I'm going to pursue English. Yeah. Super grateful that I pursued English. Yeah. Um, cause I'm such a writer and a yeah, storyteller, yeah, yeah. but that was giving up part of me wanted to do art and I gave up to do English, mm-hmm. which sounds terrible, yeah. but I was being logical. Yeah. And my father said, the arts are getting pushed out. If you want to survive, in a position of- you've got to be part of the core, which is English. Yeah. So I did, but I could not stay away from the art department again. It was again, like this draw. Yeah. Every time I had a break, I was in the art department. Yeah. I was looking at the walls. Yeah. I was staring in at the classrooms, totally. wanting to be there. So then I started to register. And then pretty soon I was a year away from an art degree. Mm-hmm. But in the ending year of my art degree, I uh, had a professor who was so belittling Ew. and so terrible. Yeah. Nobody wanted to take her classes. Yeah. Because 
that her she had the least attended classes, but people were only there because if their work didn't allow them to take other classes, they wound wound up in her class just due to time slot. Yeah, she was absolutely terrible. Ew. She told me I had no position being an educator, that I was a hopeless painter, that I had nothing good to say in anything that I did. And then she had the audacity to come up to me and be like, I know you don't like me. And all I could say was, you're right. Like, how am I supposed to? And she just looked at me and she said, but I'm trying to help you. And I looked at her and I said, well, you're not helping. You're super not. And the other students were watching me have this conversation with her with like their mouths open. Yeah. I was just like, you're not helping. Yeah. And I quit. Yeah. That semester. Um, cause I already had my English degree yeah. and I went and talked to a playwriting professor yeah. who I loved and who had always seen me and who had always supported me and who always, always just made me feel like so special. Yeah. And he was yeah. so appreciative of my voice. He said, you, you read like an actress. Yeah. You read like an artist. You have such a heart. And he told me, you need to leave. Yeah. And I am not worried about you. You don't need that art degree. You have your English degree. Yeah, you're just gonna, go. You're art. You're doing art. Yeah. Go. You'll yeah. be fine. And I yeah, I was. Is this were you were you wanting to connect this thought to like something about this thing of like, is it is there is how much choice like is there in yeah. that ability? I mean, even just like you having that conversation with that professor, like, you know, you're in a room of artists. And probably everyone wanted to say that to her. Yeah, they but did. Like, you're the one that did it, which is why I'm wondering, like, do you think some of that, like, I just have just stubborn, whatever it I is. I just have like, the audacity. That's just, I've it, just always had the audacity. Yeah. And it's just one of those things it's where, again, going learned, back to choice. Like, yeah. But I think part of it is just like losing my artist self for so many years, fighting for it so hard and yeah. not being recognized. And then also, like not really being grounded for so long and then sure. finally finding my footing and finally f- being stable enough to say the things I never said. Yeah. And now as an adult, um, this is where I think more so now than ever, it's a choice. Yeah. Before it, it well, was you driven. Have an awareness about it now. Like, I mean, as an adult, I mean, this is why, like I, this is part of why I like to talk in like, Segments. human development yeah because i think your brain is just like it's capable of different things as you age i mean that's uh-huh, not an opinion yeah. that's just true um <laughs> and so like as an adult you can as an adult creative you can story tell yourself back and be like i was always and that's why like i wonder like were you really always like i don't know when i when i think back about my self i think like i was always but then like that makes me bummed out because then i think like but if I was always, then like, can this person like become more curious? Anyway, it's just like something that I like, I cannot stop thinking about it. Um, again, cause you know, we're both I, like, we're both in Utah. Were you, were you raised in the LDS church? Oh yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, and, uh, I think like, I, I think like being a, a woman, mm. being a childless woman in your uh-huh. late 20s, early 30s, <laughs> like getting toward the, you know, maybe like getting toward the end of like your fertility, um, being like a feminist, living in the freaking state of Utah. Um, these things tend to, I think, create a bit of an obsession of like, how do I, 
what can I do? <laughs> like, how can I make this better? That's so I'm, funny. I'm so with you on it. And like my podcast is one of the ways that I'm trying. Um, like, I think that's so funny that you mentioned that because it's, um, we are driven to create, right? And as, as LDS women, ex-LDS women, are, are you ex-LDS? You still yes. LDS? No, okay. I'm at, okay. Yeah. It's one of those things where you are seen as a creator. In high school, I had men tell me, you are a creator. I see it. And I think they were meaning like a baby maker, but they Ew. were like Mormon boys trying to convert me back to the church, telling me that I was so creative. I was a creator. Oh. Um, they didn't say I needed to have children, but yeah. they recognized the capacity for yeah. me to create insane amounts of magic. Um, oh. And I would listen to this and I would watch them and I would hear them and I would see them and I'd be like, oh, you recognize the artist in me, but you're seeing the mm. artist in me through a lens of religion, like, yeah. wherein my creation Can and what I, I leave behind yeah. doesn't have to be human. It can be right. my work, it can yeah. be my art, it can oh be a gosh. painting, it can be yeah. a play, it can be a concept, it can be a, an institution that's been changed because of the regulations and the processes that I've instilled. Yeah. Like, there's a lot yeah. of things that I've been a part of in this state that have yeah. revolutionized things. Oh my gosh, I, I, ha I don't know that I've like specifically thought about this this way, but like, yes, in the years that women that are having children are creating children, I feel like I've been like, doing work my work. creative work um not that like it's a binary of course um like people who like have children can be like creative and like other ways too but yeah I mean I definitely think that I took that like <coughs> what was so you you <coughs> stopped being Mormon in your teens mm -hmm. okay yeah so you yeah you had 18. you've had more time than I have like outside of this um it takes years yeah. But I mean, I definitely feel like I like my femininity or the way that like that's been conceptualized to me, mm. like in my childhood and in my youth um, through these systems uh, has definitely like intertwined with my creativity in like a weird like this is my mantle as a woman <laughs> to like create. Um, in like a bizarre way. Like, it this is, is very bizarre. Me think about this now. Okay. Before we get like too far here, tell me about your teenage years and what, what, so I want to know what was happening like with your art? Like, what were you doing? And then I also want to know like, how was your kind of identity changing? Oh, so as a teenager, I, you know, junior high, I found theater Okay. And then all of a sudden I had friends. Yeah. It was crazy. Amazing. It was like I had found my people because before I was so just lonely. I literally had my best friend was a yo-yo. No joke. It was black. And I used to play with it every day. Um, and then I would go home and just do my thing with my stuffed animals yeah. or climb trees or play at the park yeah. by myself. Theater opened up the whole entire world. And I got cast in a play and for the first time in my life, I had a crush on a boy at 14. It took me that long yeah. to understand what attraction was. I literally didn't understand the nature of attraction. Yeah. And I then, um, ninth grade after I had discovered theater, I moved 
So then my entire life in Kearns was left behind. So Kearns is in Utah for, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, on the west side. Yeah. So where did you move? I moved to Bountiful. So okay. I literally moved from the west side, one of the most diverse schools, yeah. to Bountiful, yeah. one of the least diverse, most conservative white Mormon schools. And it left my entire world behind. But I still knew theater. So... When I got into high school, I tried out for a play, The Wizard of Oz, and I did not do very well. And I learned that in this world, it doesn't matter what you know, it matters who Ew. you know in yeah. this particular in, sure. bountiful. My high school was... Very I, similar. There's, I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, which oh. is not... As Utah, as bountiful, but it's pretty, it's still kind of Utah. It's bad. Arizona has enough, like, indigenous and Hispanic culture that I think it, like, is a little bit, it's a little different from Utah. Um, but Mesa is pretty, it's pretty white Mormon. That's yeah. bountiful. Like, yeah, I literally remember coming to bountiful my first day and looking around and thinking, where are all my brown people at? Yeah. Literally. Not in Bountiful. Not in Bountiful. Yeah. And so, yeah, I uh, tried out for a play. I knew I was talented. I knew I was good. Yeah. I knew I had a voice. I knew all of these things. Yeah. And I literally got no opportunities oh, because nobody knew me. A gross lesson to learn at such a young age. I mean, like, that is a lesson that you're going to learn as a human. Oh, I like, especially... I imagine you were so fragile. Like, I mean, just having started to kind of connect to other people, how many years was this between like joining theater in Kearns and then moving? One. Ugh. 14 to 15. Yeah, that's, I mean, like you're just starting to like put feelers out to like other humans and maybe grounding a little bit. And then to like move to a place where you have to learn this lesson of like, it's like, it's hard enough. And then, like, there's all this other stuff. That's just politics. Oh. This how was did, where I first what did you learned do? politics. How did you, like, how did you deal with it? I mean, how did how did you not like revert and quit? Yeah. Um. I just uh, again, literally not understanding. Yeah. Literally oh, not comprehending. I so relate to that and just knowing that the art was more important. Yeah. So I stayed humble. Yeah. Did this play that was completely just a time suck. Yeah. There was no benefit. I didn't feel fulfilled. It just felt awful. Yeah. Um, Cause we had to be at all the practices, but only had like a three minute moment. Yeah. It was terrible. The play was awful. There was no point. Um, and everyone's like, "You're everyone's an important piece," and I was just like, "I could not be here. I and could, you wouldn't know. No, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I feel the least important, and I just realized like that's not what I need. So I went back to choir, tried out for choir, um, didn't make choir, uh, the choir that I wanted to make, and then I kept doing things with the visual arts, yeah. and kept getting turned out. So I, I had a like high school was a brutal wake up call, or yeah. it was just like Rejections. you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're oh. not good enough, you're not good enough, and I yeah. just kept going because inherently, even as in high school, I'm just a resilient person. Oh, I, I just am so resilient. Yeah, 
other people would give up. Well, I think maybe you touched on a thing. Like when you said, like, I just didn't understand. Like, I think, I think my resilience as a child was hapless like that. Uh, (laughs) It just was like, it just, things just didn't make sense to me in a way that I just was like, well, I think if I keep, if I do this, this should happen. Yeah. Like the resilience (laughs) wasn't like, it wasn't like, I'm gonna, whatever. It was just like, the thing that makes sense to me is that like, I do this and then this happens. Yeah. And it was just like a thorough lack of understanding of like, way life works yeah and i and i uh, sincerely like i think it's like i had a, a a light bulb in my like when i was like 27 or 8 years old of like it i'm wrong i'm wrong about yeah. how it works but like i i think i think my my resilience was just like it was a floaty like magic land yeah it wasn't like a tough I feel that it wasn't like a warrior's resilience it not was just later. like that sure. came later. No, I'm so with you there. But yeah, I think. But even it's just like this is confusing. So I'll just keep. But even then, those are the beginning <sighs> seeds of yeah. resistance. Yeah. The not and this is this is what I've learned as someone who constantly is fighting. Yeah. Always. Yeah. The the seeds of resistance are born in not getting it. Yeah, that's where it is. It's just like yeah. I don't get it. I don't relate to this. I don't relate to this. And then once you realize that these things aren't making sense, your brain starts to make the connections on how not only does it not make sense, it's but wrong. it's not right. Yeah, yes. It's not benign. And then as yeah. you grow older, that's when you start consciously yeah. becoming a battler, a, a warrior for Hardcore, the arts. Amen. Like I have experienced that. Like, and it, it's an interesting thing. Like, did you, were your parents or like other adults in your life, modeling this kind of language of like yeah never so yeah they they literally did not understand me yeah they like again they were supportive yeah of of the art yeah um and they wanted me to be creative and they respected creativity and they respected art but they did not use it yeah they did not understand my art so interesting to like look back on those things in retrospect and be like I was having the same conversation that like artists and like activists have been having for decades and hundreds of years. Yes. Um, but like, it's just, it, that's bizarre. It's a bizarre thing that like you're experiencing it. And then ling- later being like, there's a language for this. Mm-hmm. There are institutions like there, there are, um, there are structures. There are like ways of like talking about these things. Uh, it's weird to like discover it from the inside out. I always wonder what it would have been like to have either parents or just teachers, adults being like, well, that's racism, you know, like, I mean, like, I, I, I used to have those kinds of conversations with my kids and they used to shut me down. And it wasn't just like another teacher coming to me and being like, you shouldn't talk about that. It wasn't even my principal coming to me and being like, no, it wasn't the kids telling me I shouldn't be talking about that. I would be like, we're going to talk about feminism. We're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about institutions. We're going to talk about mind control because this is art and this is what you should be aware of. Right. Yeah. And the teachers and the principal wouldn't come talk to me. They went all the way up to the top of the institution. Oh they had gosh. the superintendent called on me multiple times and he would come to me and he'd say, you are not allowed to talk about these things. Do you understand? Ew, and I, I said, so much. I said, why? 
And he's like, because we don't get into politics. I said, this isn't politics. These are Are, human rights. Are we not allowed to discuss human rights in an educational institution? And I am like leveling it for these children. I am telling them like through a really like soft, kind, and like their level, totally like illustration that like maybe we shouldn't see women as less than maybe we shouldn't see brown people as less than, and you're telling me that I can't say this. He's like, don't let me catch you talking about politics again. Oh my gosh. And I was like, fine, we won't talk about politics. We'll just talk about Rosie the Riveter and how she changed the world. Is that okay? Yeah. You got to get sneaky about it. Yeah. And I did multiple times. I was a professor at BYU for four Mm. years. Um, Damn. After having like, when I got hired there, I'm not from Utah. So like my first line of defense here is like, I did not know. I didn't know that like you couldn't be more, you couldn't be ex Mormon and teach there. I didn't know. Um, so when I got hired there, I was already like fully out in my mind and in my heart. Um, but I just, I just was ignorant. I just didn't know. I didn't know that that was not allowed there. Um, like no one told me, I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that's so culturally (laughs) ingrained here that people just like expect you to know, but I did not know. Um, so the whole time that I was teaching there, I was also doing, you know, I, I, I was dealing with that kind of thing, but in like, you know, in what should have been a place where it's totally fine to talk about politics, college, but BYU. So anyway, all this to say, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> I've experienced that as well. Um, okay. What else about your teenage years? So you're, you're, you stopped doing theater. Did you get back into theater? I just, you know, took drama one and two and did okay. the classes. I was never really cast in plays. Yeah. But you weren't like the right thing for Bountiful. No, no, that no, sucks. No. It was never the right thing for them. Um, in any way, shape or form, I just kept trying and kept trying and kept not getting seen and not getting seen. My father was like, you should move down here so you can be a big fish in a small pond. And I was like, that's not really what I'm about. Um, I'm not really in it for the ego. I just want to do art. And it eventually came around where as a senior, um, I just got all of these scholarships as an artist for visual art. Yep. Okay. And then I just kept doing theater, but like never getting cast in anything, but I just loved theater. And then, um, my friends and I would just, we would make our own shows, our own plays. We were always messing around. We would be the ones that would like take tricycles into Smith's and ride up and down the aisles as characters and like create these storylines. My ex-girlfriend was really into film and we would always make videos and dance videos. And so we created our own world outside of the high school wherein we were so creative. And it's funny now because I'm looking, um, I look at all of these people I knew and none of them that like were cast and that had all these main roles are doing art anymore. Of course. Cause yeah. they just let it go. That's because like, they're not looking for art, you know, like I, I see that so much. Like, you know, even like I teach, I teach private music lessons, like private singing, songwriting. And sometimes when I have kids that like are so inclined to be creative or to explore, to be curious, or to be open, or to be brave, you know, whatever the things are, their parents are like, but she's not looking like Taylor Swift, you know? No, God. And and then I just, I just, I want to like grab them by the shoulders and just be like, 
that's not what it is. And like, you know, I think Taylor Swift is creative, uh, whatever. Like she's Taylor Swift. But like if someone had made Taylor Swift conform as a teeny child, she wouldn't be Taylor Swift, you know, even as conformy as Taylor Swift, like looks to us now, like you cannot do that to children. It's so, it's so upsetting. It's very um, upsetting. And you're so like the people who are like rewarded as creatives in high school so frequently aren't creative as adults because they're not actually allowed to be creative. It's so upsetting. It's, it was um, funny. It's been real funny to see that and to yeah, it's just been real funny to witness. You, yeah, get a friend request from someone from high school and you just think like, how did we, it's so weird, like, you know, and ending up the way that we are, but it's also like so extremely predictable, which is also frustrating. Um, who were you friends with in high school? How did you find your friends? Well, the very first friend I made actually turned out to be my girlfriend and she was the one that helped me leave the church. Okay. Because I had never like, been with a boy I'd never kissed a boy I had had a boy crush as a 14 year old but yeah. you know that was the first time I had ever been attracted to anyone and I yeah. was 14 yeah uh, I was very late bloomer and she was she a theater person she was you met, okay so you we met, met her there. in the play wow and then and we're thespians yeah and then we we're lesbians <laughs> <laughs> I love it but she had uh, introduced me to her friend group, and it was interesting because we had gay twins, Peruvians, Chinese people, black people. Yeah. We oh. had the most diverse lunch table in Bountiful. Yeah. Because we had all were the people just, that I didn't mean, fit was, anywhere else. Yeah, was it just that? It was like... The misfits. Yeah. But all of the misfits were the ones that, like, diverse. Like, we were yeah. the... Di like, she was a Baptist. I was from Kearns. Yeah. Um, they were from all these other places. The gay twins were from California yeah. and it was really beautiful. When you say she helped you leave the church, do you mean like in an abstract way? Like she showed you like a freedom or was she like, listen, she asked me the right questions. Yeah. She She's like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I tried to defend it and then I realized it didn't make sense. And, and then, then it wasn't until after, um, I had left the church. No, no, that's not true. We became lovers and then I left the church a year later. How old were you? 17. Um, were you like, were you like out? No. Yeah. I was as far inside the closet as you could possibly be. And there, but there were people in your friend group who were out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'd love to know, like, I'm, I'm trying to like ask this question without like projecting my experience. Um, but like, what was it like starting to be around people who maybe like had some language is why I'm asking you had some friends that were out, um, you know, had, had language, had vocabulary, had the skills to like be out. Um, how did that start like changing how you were like thinking about things or like preparing you to like be verbal or like actionable in a public way? It, um, it was different for me took me a long time to come out of the closet because yeah. even, uh, even well, it's like you have to, I mean, mm. if you grow up Mormon or like probably any fundamentalist religion, you, you're in multiple closets, so many closets, <laughs> you're in so many closets. No, it took me yeah. years, years and yeah. years and years to come out of the closet. I probably didn't fully come out until I was 25. Yeah. Honestly. Um, a lot of that has to do with, uh, trauma 
and uh, it was awful. Like she and I, she was a year older, so she was a senior and I was a junior. And we went to college together and I decided that I could no longer pretend to you were, be straight. So we're still together, like starting in high school. Okay. And after she graduated, we were together for three years. So 17 wow. to 20. Wow. And uh, yeah. we, she, it was tragic, but I talk about it a lot, actually. It's helped me to talk about it. But what happened was when I broke up with her, I was like, I can't pretend anymore. Yeah. She, and she still I can't pretend to be to. straight. Yeah. And I can't come out of the closet. I'm not ready to come out of the closet. We just have to break up. And oh, I when see. I did that, she uh, attempted suicide and was in the psychiatric institute for like three three months. Oh my gosh. And you were like 20. Mm -hmm. Which like, again, you know, I like to talk about these things in phases because like your little prefrontal cortex just like isn't ready to handle no, that kind of thing. No, it's not. <laughs> it's I still, not. I still don't. You know, it took me years to process yeah. that. Which is, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, you're good. Because it was just like, how does my first relationship, my first love, not only like super secret, not yeah, only super not like things. validated by the entire world. And this is yeah. what people don't understand is it's like, it's a very different world. I remember like clipping the entirety of my youth, like, Anything about gay rights, yeah. I would save anything, yeah. anything. When gay marriage came out, I saved the article. I saved anything that was occurring in this state with like queerness. And now these kids are, it's still hard, but it's not like it was. Yeah. It right. was so, so scary. Yeah. Well, and when you started clipping those things, like, did you, like, were you sure that like you identified as queer or were you just like, there's something like, I, I think that's I why I'm wondering, queer. like you oh. knew, okay, you knew so queer. So we, you knew like forever, forever. Okay. I knew um, I was not normal. So when you had these other friends in your high school who were out, who were talking, like, what was that like for you? Like knowing, like, I th I'm just curious, like what was going on in your like, you know, self-concept and also in the way you're like you know, interacting with the world, uh, like what happened between like, I'm presenting in like these ways to like, I'm presenting in these other ways or verbalizing in these so, other ways. So for them, it was different. Um, they weren't Mormon. They didn't sure. feel like their entire lives would be fall apart. And, fall apart. They didn't feel yeah. threatened. Right. I felt directly threatened. Yeah. I knew that if I came out of the closet, I would lose everything. Yeah. And I did get kicked out. Yeah. Once, you, I, once Amy got put in the hospital, oh my, my ex-girlfriend, I got Ugh. kicked out. I'm so sorry. That's just so much. It's so much. Um, All at once in high yeah. school. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot. Shoo. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering about it, you know, for, for the listener, we haven't talked about like what you're doing now, but like clearly what you're doing now is like, it's so you, you, you are talking and, and not talking and acting so much, you know, about gender, about mm -hmm. gay rights, yep. about like, you know, all these things. And I, I'm just curious, like how that was forming in your mind. Like, I mean, so I'm hearing it was not forming in the world. It was forming in you. Yes. Um, it was, uh, the, uh, you know, it's so weird that our deepest, darkest sorrows and pains and traumas are the things that influence our art the most. Yeah. And it makes the most powerful art because yeah. it's so real. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Was it in your art? Like veiled? 
you know, there's a lot of identity issues that I had that like, I didn't fully understand uh, a lot. It was in my poetry. Like you would not believe yeah. I would do a lot of open mics in high school. Yeah. There was this like open mic jam under the library and I would organize a lot of like beatnik spoken yeah. word poetry things. Yeah. I became an organizer. Well, when during there that time, when there aren't um, systems that work for you, you like one of the ways, I mean, again, like one of the ways that you kind of like create yourself out of that issue is like, make a thing you got to make the space <laughs> like, and be that's, a producer that's what you got to do yeah and that's what I've always done yeah because um, in Bountiful the there was not room in uh high school there was not room yeah even now then Utah did not want to make room for burlesque yeah they did not want to make room so we had to show them that it was yeah. worth uh, it was worth thinking about and uh you know there were so many people worked so many years for decades just to try to get a venue just to try to get a home. Yeah. And it wasn't until the prohibition opened that we actually yeah. had a home. And that was what, like three years ago. Okay. I was going to say four, three, Yeah, three years yeah. ago. And it's just like changed everything. Cause now wow. so many people are exposed to burlesque through prohibition, but what they don't realize is historically there have been people working, hustling, yeah. begging, yeah. begging Utah, yeah. begging any bar Ugh. like to just let yeah. us have a space to showcase this art. Yeah. And it really was a, uh, the first two years of my career. I did not get paid a cent. Yeah. We performed for nothing yeah. just because we didn't know, like there was nothing, there was nothing. Yeah. And like, so people getting into it now, yeah. um, it's really, really hard for me to like see them and see them just want to be pretty when I'm like, yeah. you do realize that what you're doing is punk rock. Yeah. As yeah. anything, yeah. this is the most radical, this right. is the most unsafe. So if you're getting on that floor, you better know your history and you don't give totally. a crap about your history. So you shouldn't be on that floor. So that's why like, I talk about it all the time. And that's where my activism comes in yeah. is it's like, <laughs> listen, you you're need part to of a historical, what this is. Yeah. You're, you're part of a historical like uprising. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. not just about you being pretty. Right. This is about your choice to use your body in the way that you see fit. Right. So if you recognize that, then we can actually have a conversation right. about why this work is radical. If you yeah. don't recognize that, get off my goddamn floor. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, okay, so by the time you were, so you decided you were identifying as an artist by the time you're, you're getting these art scholarships, mm -hmm. by the time you're like finishing high school, but you majored in English. I did. Okay, so how... And you mentioned before that like you lost your art for a while in the mix of like learning how to be an academic. <coughs> so I would love to know like, like let's go from like 18 to like 25. Yeah. What's wow. happening with art and what's happening with how you see yourself as an artist. I um <clears throat> So I got kicked out when I was 19 um, after being coming out yeah. as gay. Being, and I didn't even come like out. Outed. Outed. Yeah. Because Amy, everyone's like, why? She's in the hospital. And then she Ugh. came out in the hospital. And I had men, because I would date men as like beards, cover ups. Sure. I'm not proud of it. Yeah. But well, I was like scared. I mean, once again, your prefrontal cortex just. I'm not proud of it. Yeah. Um, but I was, there was a definite fear there, obviously. You, you, you do what you can with what you. Have. No, I know. I'm, yeah. I try not to beat myself up. Yeah. Uh, but I had men knocking on my door and being like, oh, so you're a queer. Yeah. That's why you never kissed me. That's why you never held my hand. Uh, this was all, this was all at 19 after oh I got gosh, kicked out so much. And I just kept going through college. So all of this trauma stopped my art. 
And all I could do was focus on survival. Yeah. Making enough money to hold down an apartment. Yeah. Um, work on my mental health. I was crying every day for a year. Well, it's like two decades of everything. Everything. Just, yeah. Everything. Well, Just trying to like, like not be okay. Not being allowed to set that narrative for yourself too. Like, um, and I, I mean like being outed, like not being able to like have your words on it even like just, I'm, I imagine that was devastating too. Like on top of everything else. Yeah. It um, took me, it took me. What did your parents do? Years. It took me years to actually write about it. Yeah. Uh, my dad still has not had this conversation with me. Mm. He knows I'm queer, but he won't have the conversation. My mom didn't have the conversation with me for years until I figured out that she was also queer. Interesting. Never told me. Yeah. Never yeah. told me. Wow. Um, so when, when she kicked me out at 19, it was Your so... Your mom kicked you out. Mm-hmm. It was so Ugh. wrong because, like, she was in the closet. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so it was, like, her not being able to recognize herself in me. Totally. And then having this and self-hatred so projected onto me. We're good now, but that was, like, the worst part of my life was just not well, having anywhere to go. I was going to ask just now, like, you know, your parents had always been supportive of your creativity and tried to let you be. And then to have that, like, to realize, like, this is the thing that's, like, the end of that. Or, you know, what I'm sure you thought then was the end of that. Yeah. Like, what was that like? Awful. Yeah. I, I mean, how did... It was life-shattering. Did... I couldn't do anything. I couldn't draw. I couldn't yeah. eat. I couldn't do anything. I literally was just... I turned into a shell of a person. And what happened between... 18 and 25 when I found burlesque that like 25 is when I, I picked really, the right number. You <laughs> did. You totally did. Between 18 and 25, I was school, 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 yeah. school and processing. Yeah. I was just processing all this trauma. Did school not, feel safe? Uh, no. Okay. It was just something I was just, or I was just doing what I knew I had to do. It was, like it was the way, or... it was the way I knew how to survive because yeah. I had chosen to be an academic. I was not a good academic like, as a youth but I knew how to play the system. I knew how to work the system. I learned how to do it. I learned how to get A's. I learned how to bend over backwards and yeah. mold myself to be what they yeah. wanted me to be. So it wasn't safe and it was extremely frustrating and I hated every yeah. single second of it. But right. I knew that this is what I had to do in order to get the degree, in order to do the thing that I wanted to do, right. which was teach. Um, but I'm the only good thing about my undergrad was Jeff Metcalf, my playwriting teacher in every creative writing class I had. Um, and Shakespeare. Yeah. I loved Shakespeare and I loved poetry. Everything else I, I could let go of. Yeah. I didn't want to read Jane Austen. Didn't want to read any kind of like old dead white guy literature. Could yeah. give it. They couldn't care less. Mm. Um, but it taught me how to read and it taught me how to write. And that's what I'm grateful for. Yeah. The degree process itself is created to make slaves. So I'm not really into that. Yeah. Um, but the well, the process of education I do respect. And it just... The the thing about it was is not only did I was I processing my ex girlfriend's trauma, but within a year after that, my first boyfriend also tried to commit suicide. Oh my gosh! So yeah. I had a back to back experience of a female lover, a male yeah. lover had like, well, this is my fault. This yeah, is- that starts becoming a narrative. Yes, Ugh. and yeah. so I had to go through that. 
Um, and so when people, and I realize now that it was a gift, you know, I don't remember who said this, but the thing that kept me like alive through all of that was like, someone told me once there was, um, when someone gives you a box of darkness, you need to realize that this is a gift too. Yeah. And that was the thing that kept yeah. me alive That's and not a difficult like thing to think about. It was, but I, I just had to like process and process and process. So those years were processing and not creating, um, yeah. much of anything. Well, you know, this is another, I, I talk with, I talk with my guests a lot about, you know, there's, there's the childhood creativity problem of like teachers, not like, can I tell a little story? Yes. Um, I, my niece, she's a, the tiniest badass. Um, she's six, like turning six this year, maybe. Um, she's, she's the bravest little girl that I have like ever known. <laughs> Yay. Um, um, and she, uh, she and I were coloring the other day or drawing. We were just sitting and drawing cause they, they live in St. George, but they were up here for the holidays. And, um, I was like, Katie, what, what do you want me to draw? And she was like, well, you draw a giraffe and three lions. So, um, I, I started drawing my giraffe in pink and magenta cause these are the, these are the colors that yes. I like. And she goes, and this is a child that's like extremely brave, extremely like, I would say nonconformist as a six year old can be. Um, <laughs> and she, she said to me, this is just, it's cute, but it's also so sad. She was like, Emily, I think you should use the brown for the giraffe. And I was like, well, I like the pink. And she was like, but you should use the brown. And I was like, well, it's for her. So, okay, I'll use the brown. So I start coloring with the brown and she puts her little hand like on the table, like we're sitting across from each other. She goes, do you see that's getting a little better? Oh God. <laughs> and like, this isn't a child that's like, and it just made me think like, what, why? As I, I asked her parents about it la last night, I think, um, they were over here and, uh, they were like, well, yeah, the teachers, the teachers tell them like they should use what's realistic. And I just think like this is happening in a way that is so insane. Anyway, all this to say, um, crazy. There's this childhood creativity problem where like you can't draw a pink giraffe if you're a six year old. It's so funny that you say giraffe because one of the drawings that always comes in when I think of my childhood was my rainbow giraffe. Yeah. Well, giraffes in kindergarten. Are kind of, they're just, they're a fantastical creature. They're fantastical are creatures. They real? And they should be able <laughs> yeah. to be colored whatever color they should be able to be pink and purple if we want and them blue to. Blue and orange yeah. and yellow and green. Um, but yeah, so like there's that problem, but then there's this, there's this human development problem that happens when you're 18 and your brain is so fragile. Mm -hmm. Your brain is so fragile. And this is the time when you're supposed to choose what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yep. This is the time when you go to college yep. and it is such an intense problem. Um, people that felt creative and ex exploratory in high school, go to college. So fragile, have often their first heartbreaks, start dealing with, you know, like, you know, have, have maybe some of the worst mental health <coughs> years of their life. Oh yeah. Have the fewest resources are away from home. Um, it's brutal. It's so much. And so like, brutal. you know, it's brutal in all of the ways, mm -hmm. but like, even as we're having this specific conversation about art and creativity, withstanding those years, 18 to 20 ish, 20, you know, 18 to your, through your twenties, um, 18 to 30, uh, how do you maintain artistry and creativity when your brain is in a crisis? 
because it's, it's you crazy. have to. Yeah. And I mean, again, I think now that we're having this conversation, I think art, I think we choose it, like I yeah. said, but I also think like there's just something inherently like healing about it. And I feel like when you need it, yeah, it'll, it'll just it'll just call to you like veterans. Like I have a lot of vet friends and they love music. Music is something that they just cannot stay away from and it saves their lives. And I feel like the arts are the, one of the best medicines there is. And so as far as like choice, yes, it's a choice, but I also feel like it's a human drive as well. Um, and there's just certain points of your life where you just can't deny it. And not everyone's going to be an artist in the sense that we think, Oh, like you're going to make your living. You're going to be, and that's not what you have to do. But I feel like a lot of people have to grab back onto it if they're going to survive. I, I think so too. And that's why like, you know, like I, I interview professional artists, but really what I'm interested in is like, can we, can we find some clues or strategies that those of us who have made creativity the primary focus of our adulthood, can we figure out how to like, you know, reduce it down for people who aren't going to be like artists in the way we're talking about it. And like, if I'm being honest, like that's the question I'm more interested in. Like I love talking to professional artists um, it makes me feel seen and heard and like, you know, totally. professional artists are, are, are the people that don't make me feel like a weird alien. Um, <laughs> but you know, the people that I was raised by and raised with, um, the people who I've spent the most of my life with aren't those people. And then I think like, how can, can, is there a way to like learn from people who've made art and creativity, the main thing of their adulthood that we can take and be like, use some of this, you know, just do a little bit of it. That feels more important to me. There are now uh, classes in colleges just based on creativity. Yeah. Creativity courses um, that you can get credit for. I was just asked to do a a speech for creative mornings. You know what creative mornings is? It's a, a nationwide broad live broadcast speaking program cool where like multiple states will have people speak on a topic and then they'll share them cool um i was asked to speak on flow and the whole entire speech was about how to access creative flow and how to keep that alive and how to do it as uh someone who considers themselves creative or non-creative yeah um there are are many ways to be creative that don't require monetary compensation it feels so important but I feel like you, again, as a person, have to decide what you're doing it for. Yeah. And that's, I, I have a lot of these conversations with people. I'm like, you know, a certain, um, many aspects of my work are prostitution. Yeah. Because do I want to always look like a doll and take my clothes off? No. Yeah. But do I? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Why? Well, cause I got to pay my bills Yeah, and it's all burlesque yeah. and that's wonderful. But where my real heart lies is in burlesque with a message or in my plays or in my one woman show. Yeah. My one woman show completely changed my life. I had never made so much money yeah. ever Oh, that's in amazing. any artistic endeavor. Yeah. I still am blown away about, uh, yeah. by the amount of money I made. Well, and that's, and it's, and we're in Utah. And we're so in it's Utah. Like it's, it's there. It's there. Like, 
yeah, I, I also get like, I get, a, I get obsessy and kind of, um, I don't know, I get excited about like thinking about how we can, what we can do. Um, is there anything else you want to say about 18 to 25? Just that it was a hellhole. Just that it was bad. It was bad. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was thinking when you were talking, you know, like I have two art degrees. Like my, I have a bachelor's degree in jazz studies yes. and I have a master's degree in jazz performance. Look at you. Um, oh. And I went to a school. I went to the University of North Texas, which is like, it's the first university in the world to have a jazz studies program. So it's kind of this historic, it's a, it's one of the best jazz studies programs in the world. So the people who go there are like, I mean, this, the program is 80% out of state. So it should tell you like, you know, it, it doesn't, the culture of the program is the culture of the program. Yes, please take that. Um, and even there in this place where like, we're so, you know, in so many ways on the same page about like that, this is an art place. This is an art building. This is where creativity is happening. I talk with so many of my, um, classmates now, you know, we've been out of school, the people that are my, like eight, my year, we've been out of school now, like, you know, five to eight years, depending on whether we did a master's or whatever. Um, and, uh, so many people saying the same thing you're saying of like, I wasn't creative during that time in this art degree, you know, it's just, it's such a fragile time. It's such a volatile time. Um, it, there's a lot of fear in those years. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, I don't know who I am mm -hmm. or I know who I am, but I don't know how I'm going to be seen. Yeah. And they're I, not, I, they're not wanting to see me. Yeah. Or yeah, I know exactly who I am and that no one is believing me mm, yes. or no one is like, I mean, that's something I experienced a lot. Like I, I know that's who real. I am and people will not hear it. And that's when I, so real. When I try to say like, this is who I am. People are like, yeah, I yeah. get that that's what you like are think want. You maybe, are. maybe that sounds fun to you, you know, or like maybe that's what you'd like to be. There's, um, there's so much power in saying I am. Yeah. And I made an active practice of that. Yeah. When anybody asks me what I do, oh, I am a burlesque performer. I'm a performance artist. And more often than not, people will laugh. <laughs> what yeah. does that mean? And I was like, I'll tell you exactly what it means. Yeah. There's no shame. There's no question. There's no like wavering in me. Yeah. I'm like, you don't have to believe me because I know how I pay my bills. Yeah. Honey. Like, listen, it's true. Um, okay. Yeah. So 18 to 25, I think the thing I want to leave us with is just keep trying. Just, <laughs> just keep going. Keep your hapless resilience or your warrior resilience or like however you're doing it, just do it. Okay. Now please tell me how you got into clowning. Yeah. How you got into, I mean, even just like making your amazing costumes. Yes. That's a whole art form separately. Uh -huh. How you got into burlesque. Yes. What happened? Tell me all the things. I will. First I need to pee. Please. Okay. Yes. <laughs> We're breaking, breaking for pee. Welcome back from the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm also just feeling very like extremely interested in everything you have to say. Yay. Okay. Well, let's get a clean break back in. Yes. Ready? Okay. Yay. <laughs> back from peeing. Um, tell me about, yeah, tell me about, tell me about the things. You remember the question. It's your whole I life. I do. It's my whole life or when my life started. 25. 25. <laughs> 25. So actually throughout the uh, 18 to 25 range, 
I actually started doing belly dance. Okay, cool. And belly dance, I was awful at, but I did get paid. <laughs> yeah. And I did try. I worked yeah. really hard and I trained and I took classes and I really tried and I had a great personality. And I got booked at a restaurant that uh, one of the only restaurants belly dancers got paid at and I got to book other people. Cool. So I started kind of touching that creativity there, but it was never my language. Yeah. I never fully resonated. Was that like a big like body confrontation thing? Like, and I don't mean in like a body image way. I mean in like a being in your body way. Yeah. Um, it did help me settle into my body, but again, it wasn't really my language. Yeah. It was something that was good for me and it unlocked my hips and it, made me aware of like certain aspects of myself that I'd forgotten. Yeah. But it like, wasn't really like something I truly loved. Yeah. And what happened was I started to, and it was also, I got, you know, through 18 to 25, girlfriend, boyfriend, both tried to commit suicide. And then my third relationship, I got married. So it was okay. just like yeah. this craziness. I got married at 22, divorced at 25. Wow. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> and gosh. it was like throughout all of that, started belly dancing at like 23 or something. I don't remember, but. I think it, I just am wondering, like, how did you decide to start belly dancing as a person who like had a hard time being in your body. Yeah. I think that's really more what I'm... It was a it was a invitation by someone in my literature class. Okay. He's like, my mom teaches. You should probably take it. And I said, okay, why not? And then I kind of fell in love with Beth, my teacher, mm. and just kind of found success that way. And then as I was belly dancing, I just kept running into these concepts. And the most success I had as a belly dancer was in storytelling surprise surprise yeah so there was this act where my dance partner her name was Shelby Rickert she was a famous belly dancer back in the 70s and 80s traveled the world amazing she's incredible she was a tree and she had a snake puppet around her arms and her head was in a green afro and she was the tree of life and I was Eve cool and I was a quote unquote belly dancer but what this thing was was burlesque yeah and so me and the snake and the tree danced and did belly dance but it was to uh cold-hearted snake by paula abdul and it was just that was the moment i was like that's what i want to do yeah and when people saw that in the belly dance circles they're like that wasn't belly dance we don't know what that was. Yeah. And then it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, that's burlesque. So what? I found a teacher. Can you who, give us a mm. definition of burlesque? Oh, it's an yeah. art that defies definition. Sure. Yeah. And that's exactly what I wrote my paper on in my master's. Amazing. There's so many definitions yeah. and I refuse to put it into one category. Okay. But what it is, is it's like a social political dance performance that pokes fun at the status quo. Okay. That's what I would say, but it can also be very serious. Um, but so anyway, I was just making fun of the fact that the snake thought that he gave the knowledge to Eve because yeah. at the end of the act, I balance the apple on my head and the snake's begging me to like eat the apple and I keep like teasing him and teasing him and teasing him. And at the end I shove the apple in the snake's face and everybody knows that I knew all the information anyway. Yeah. So it was my first cool. act that was burlesque. Wait, how did you like decide to do that? I just came into my head. Okay. Did just it, did from it, storytelling. Did you feel like it required like a bravery to like approach your partner and say like, 
I want to do this thing. Like, was that difficult or okay? It wasn't difficult. I literally couldn't help it. It just like occurred to you and you were like, it's this has now to it has to happen. Yep. Yeah. I have experienced that one as well. Just like, I <laughs> it's don't not even, even audacity. It's just like, it's necessary. This can't. is just what's happening. This is just what you have yeah. to do. <laughs> okay. So, so then you found a teacher. I did find a teacher through the belly dance community okay. who did burlesque and she was interesting. Um, she's very angry. She didn't know how to produce a show. She never got us any money. She tried her best, but she had a lot of personality flaws and yeah. a lot of anger that mm -hmm. rubbed off onto us. She blamed us for a lot of things. It was a toxic relationship, the most toxic teacher-student relationship I've ever experienced. Yeah. Um, she did a lot for us, but she also did a lot of damage. Yeah. But who she did introduce me to, Miss Brawling Beauty, changed my life. Miss Brawling Beauty, I consider my burly mama. Uh, I'm not going to mention this other teacher's name. Suffice it to say, uh, I'm really glad I don't work under her yeah. anymore. It was a good learning lesson, and it taught me a lot. Yeah. But Miss Brawling Beauty was the one that... Uh, She's been a pioneer of Utah burlesque. She's been doing it for decades. Wow. She's the one that gave me the art. She's the one that I call. She's the one that I ask questions to. She's yeah. the one that helped me set the rates at the prohibition. She's mm -hmm. the one that gave me knowledge on how to produce a show. She's the one that gave me the opportunity to travel. She's the one that encouraged me to apply out of state and gave me the confidence to be who I am today. Wow. Miss Browning Beauty is my, is my mama. Cool. So tell me, uh, tell me more, like just, I mean, how did you get into clowning? How did you start like creating your costumes? Like, um, I just, I want to know everything about like how you built, like what your career is now. Oh my, it's such a long journey. After the divorce in 2015, um, I was shattered. So I'd been shattered in love so many times. Yeah. It was a nonstop shattering. This is literally girlfriend, boyfriend, marriage divorce it was just everything just kept shattering and shattering and shattering and I just have to kept having to put the pieces back together and when the divorce happened I remember sitting in my room and not knowing where to go not knowing how I was going to pay the bills still in school poor as like poor as so so poor yeah the numbers were not going to match up there was no no way I could pay my bills um and my ex-husband was leaving. He was gone. He didn't want the house. I had nowhere to go. So I had to figure out a way to pay my bills. And I just remember scrolling on Facebook. And for some reason, humanitarian clowning came into my feed. And mm -hmm. I was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. So what happened was I started looking up clown schools. And everything was so expensive. Ringling Brothers had just closed their doors that year. They had just mm -hmm. run their last show. And the clown school that I found was Mooseburger Clown Camp in Minnesota. And I was like, that's it. That's where I'm going. And I did my first clown face I'd ever done. Wow. And I sent it in and I got a scholarship Yeah, for my face, the very first clown face wow. I'd ever done. And I don't know why I was good at it. I was just good at it. And yeah. it was amazing. I had done mime yeah. before okay. just for gigs. Yeah. Just cause I needed the work. Yeah. Someone asked me to do a mime and I said, all right. And it I'll wasn't, it yeah. wasn't paid. And this was, but I did it. Like how, what kind of performing were you doing when you like got offered a mime gig? Like, I feel like I've missed something. Belly dance. Okay. 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 So you started doing belly dance. You're performing in belly dance. Then, then you started doing burlesque and then you started doing clowning. 
No, bur- sorry. burlesque and clowning came in at the same okay, time. Okay, kind of at the same time. Which okay. is why the majority of my burlesque acts are comedy-based. Okay. Because they really did come in at the same yeah. time when my world was shattered. That's when I found burlesque. That's when I found puppetry. That's when I found clowning. Okay. Those three arts yeah. all fell in at the same time. Okay. Um, do you have, like, did you have any, like, preconceptions about these art forms? No. <laughs> I didn't. How were you talking to people who did have preconceptions about these art forms? Uh, this is kind of a leading question, but I feel like it must I be honestly, a thing. now that I've been in it for years, I realize this is who I've always been. Yeah. But with burlesque, I didn't know that I was doing burlesque. Yeah. I just knew that I wanted to storytell with my body and that, um, again, for many, many years, I, I lost my voice. Yeah. I didn't. So that's why miming was so comfortable for me. I see. Yeah. Because it was just gone. And part of that was being in the closet. Yeah. Well, and I imagine, did belly dance like also feel like, did you like the like lack of voice? Like, was that an easy entry back into this world? I don't know. Belly dance was interesting. I feel... Like, again, I don't feel like it was really my language, yeah. but I feel like it did what it needed to do, sure. which was unlock my, um, unlock my feminine, really. Mm. I never allowed myself to be yeah. feminine. I never allowed myself to be sexual yeah. in that way. That's really interesting. Um, and that's what led me to accessing my feminine for once in my life. Cause I'm just super queer. Yeah. I didn't know. I'm now I know that I'm non-binary, but before I just knew I was queer. Yeah. So when you went, so you went to clown school. I did. Um, so I, when I asked that question before, I think I meant more like when you were, when you like went to clown school, how did you talk to people about like, huh. like, cause I'm, I mean, I have to imagine you have these conversations, like I'm going to clown school and people are like, what's what? clown school? Yeah. I, yeah. yeah I, I told them I didn't know. Um, mm. but I did say this, I did go to open mics with my clown nose yeah. And I would talk about my excitement about traveling. Yeah. I would do this thing where I would just be like, I'd put on my clown nose and then I would t- talk conceptually as an academic about clowning. Sure. And, and you, that's how I kind of handled it. And I was just didn't know where it was going to lead me or what it was going to do for me. Yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, I, I'm just meeting you today. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been like aware of you for like six months or something. Uh-huh. I think it was actually, it was, so what happened was, during pride. So oh. in what, like June, July, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking I need, I want to find a clown to interview. Cause it, like, you know, I, it's really important to me to represent like as many art forms as possible. And Felicia had made a post about like something related to pride. Like who's, you know, are, are there any clowns involved or something and you had someone like four, five people tagged you <laughs> or something like that. And that's when I sent you a friend request. Um, Cause I was like, I, I, I had been like looking like I, I want to interview someone who's doing clowning um, anyway. And then like, now I'm finally interviewing you, but I've been like, I've been thinking since like pride, which we, we know was in the summer. Um, and it's now January 2nd. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I just got, I just totally distracted myself. Um, Clowns do that. Yeah. Remembering why I know of you. Um, but so as since in the time that I've been aware of you, um, 
you're very outspoken about like all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine there was a time when you're 25, when you're not. So um, I, I'd love to know like how the transformation happens between like being someone who's like, I'm an academic and I'm putting on this clown nose ironically to like what you're doing now, which I think is so like beautifully transparent um, or at least it looks that way. Um, how did you do that in like what, three years? So what happened? whenever I put the clown nose on it, it wasn't really ironic. It was, I took it very seriously actually. Um, I don't know why, but it felt very home. Okay. And I, uh, I just resonated yeah. deeply with the clown. A part of that was my studies in Shakespeare. Okay. And knowing oh, how smart yeah. clowns are. Right. And then uh, getting, getting out there and learning the history, learning the skills, remembering who inspired me to go search out clowns. Sure. Because like I had met a clown in the city named Celeste and she became my clown's sister. But that wasn't until after I went to clown school. Okay. Um, but she was doing clowning for years. And then after I came back from clown school, all of a sudden everybody wanted a clown. Everybody yeah. wanted one. Wow. Um, so, and I just started, I just started getting associated with clowning, like nobody's business. And it really is like my primary art form. Yeah. It's what I do. And when I started to incorporate comedy into burlesque, everyone just died over it. And yeah. That's like a thing people wanted that they didn't know. No, they, they wanted. wanted. And yeah. then I doing the historical research, I realized that that's what burlesque has always been. Yeah. Um, funny, very yeah. funny, very uh, poking fun at the status quo. Yeah. So it made complete sense. And it was like, again, like it wasn't like a controlled thing. It was, they fell in. Yeah. It came to me where yeah. I, when I needed them the most. Cause I was literally a shattered person on the floor, yeah. not knowing how I was going to make my living. And then, yeah. uh, it was like, and then you were like, "This is I'm the gonna thing. be a this clown. Is, yeah, I'm gonna work as a clown. I'm gonna get paid. I'm gonna do burlesque. I'm gonna get paid." <coughs> and I don't know how I've kept held on to my house through this economic craziness. I don't know how through school, yeah, through working, it's, through gigging, I mean, it's through amazing. everything. I don't know how. Yeah, there's numbers. The numbers haven't been there. My ex-husband didn't pay me any money. I had roommates for a while, but they all just ended up being more expensive than yeah, not. Yeah, totally. Um, so, because well, they didn't care. And uh, now I live alone and I made, I've made more money I, than I've ever made as an artist. I love it so much. Yeah. I'm so like, I'm like proud of you. Thank you. Know? you. Like, I feel just like. I'm proud of me too. I, dang it. I, it, yeah, it's just. I mean, what an incredible story. Um, you have to put yourself back together. And, yeah. you know, I f- when I talk about it, like being shattered on the floor, people come to my studio or to my house and they'll see the puppets and they'll see the costumes and they'll see all of these things. And all of those are the different pieces of me. Yeah. So that I wouldn't have found them if I hadn't have been shattered. I wouldn't have unlocked all of these different characters. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have... A lot of stock clowns. I usually create a clown yeah. to match the gig. I love your costumes. But, yeah, They're but there's so a cool. few. There's a few that'll stay. That'll yeah, always like stay. A permanent character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like uh, Maeve the Jester is a permanent character. And then uh, Lady Fingers is the puppeteer clown and she's a permanent character. Those two are my stock clowns. Cool. Um, can you just give me like a list of like all of the ways that you like have been 
like in your in this profession have been or like could be paid just you know because again oh, yeah. like I think art art professions are abstract to people they are so yeah like what are what are the ways that you like make money or, um or so I have my could? I have my steady gigs at the prohibition because I've been there since the beginning I the prohibition is a club it is a club it's a burlesque club if you look up burlesque Utah prohibition comes up yeah um which is funny because if you look up burlesque blue laws utah the first word on google is my name awesome <laughs> which is so funny because i'm such a staunch like like advocate yeah for being safe i'm yeah. not an advocate for the law but yeah. i am an advocate for being safe so we can continue to do the work um but yeah so the prohibition is a burlesque club i was the first person to put a show in there um it wasn't a good show the shows got better. Yeah. Well, you learn. You learn. Yeah. Um, but I've been there since before the new management. I was one of the first MCs. And do you get paid yeah. hourly for that? Or is no, that like it's a-, a set rate because okay. Miss Brawling Beauty yeah. told me what rates we should be getting. Right. I told the old owners those rates and they're still the rates we're getting cool. today. And do you run like, do you run a show for like some period of time? Yep. Okay. We have shows at seven thirty, nine thirty, and eleven fifty. Oh, I mean more like, is there like, is it like <coughs> theater where there's like a show that like goes? Oh for, no, there are variety shows. Time. Okay, so vaudeville style shows. So they'll bring in different producers depending on what they need or want, and they'll book different producers to bring in different entertainers. And so sometimes there's themes, sometimes yeah. there's not, but every show is different. Okay, okay, and and every show just happens once. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, and so you do you get paid as a producer and a performer? Yes, but that okay. wasn't always the case. Okay. I spent the first two years there not getting paid as a producer. Yeah. And then like put hey, my this foot is down. Valuable. I yeah. Need, yeah. And then they got really wise and I'm super respected there. And they're learning too. And now they pay all their producers. Cool. They pay all the performers really well. They pay the best rates in the state. People want to perform there. They get they we get food and drinks as well. Cool. Um and it's changed a lot for the better and we're learning Good. all the time and it's just like hitting its stride now. And I'm really proud to be associated and a part of it. And I really cool. do love the prohibition so much. And it is the home. Yeah. You look up Burlesque Utah, yeah. Prohibition is the first thing right That's there awesome. at the top. And then Underneath Prohibition is the UVBC, which is the Facebook page I run, the Utah Vaudeville and Burlesque Collective. Amazing. So it's just like, yeah. And then are, are you attention. doing like outside, like gigging with burlesque with that too? Okay, great. So, so with there's gigs and Prohibition, then- it's like the home venue. I sure. can be there anytime. I do Burlioki, which is the show I developed, which is karaoke and burlesque. So I can drop in on that anytime. I've trained and so that MCs show- in that and have like created people that can come in and sub for me in that because I can't do that every Thursday. Okay, and that's that's what I was wondering before. Like when I was saying like, does the show repeat? That's what I meant. Like not like the same performers, but like there's a structure of your show that's happening on Thursdays. Yeah, so that's Burley Oki. That's okay. not Friday and Saturday. Sure. So for instance, like my producer friend Meg does the Va Va Voom shows. Uh, Tyler, Sister Molly Mormon does Sacrament and Sin. Okay. Then there's Burlesque in the Beats. So there's then kind there's of specialty like... shows like Christmas and Halloween and Mardi Gras and Valentine's Day. Okay. There was a Seven Deadly Sin show. There's like a, there was a Queen so you're show last year. Like a show that has some like theme or structure. Sometimes. And then, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with clowning, that's like that's gigs. Gigs. Are you also teaching or like? I was teaching burlesque for a while because we needed more men so I specialized in teaching boylesque um, cool. and I need to separate this is what I'm currently working on is creating curriculum that's 
for funsies because there's so many people that just want to do yeah. it for funsies and then versus series. like an actual training program. Yeah. The I had eight men sign up for my training program. Only two made it through the whole thing. And those two constantly have work. Yeah. Constantly. Wow. And one of them moved to New Orleans to pursue his burlesque career. Amazing. So like my training program does work. Yeah. Super proud of it. But then there's so many people that just want to do it for funsies. Yeah. So I have to separate my my goals. Um, used to teach, don't teach currently. Uh because I've been working so hard on my you thesis. Could teach. I mean, that's why like I kind of <coughs> wanna I want to just like give the, the <coughs> listeners Sorry. a list of like, here's a person who has these skills, here's how this person does or could get paid for these skills. But you have to have yeah. like, and this is what I tell everyone is like, you can have the skills, but if you don't have like the interpersonal relationships. Sure. Well, I would say that's a skill too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you can be talented and you yeah. can be a great dancer, but if you don't know how to work with people, you're not going to work with people. Yeah. So my strengths um, really rely on my professionalism, my timeliness, my yeah. ability to communicate and uh just all those like, english skills mm -hmm. yeah good mm -hmm. writing like yeah, all of it just yeah time like timeliness yeah and so for me i get a lot of work as an mc cool and i clown a lot as an mc and there was a couple of uh there's been a couple of times uh where i've had like a series of six months where every month or twice a month i'd have a clown puppet show cool so i do that and then with my one woman show that was a clown show Okay. Yeah. I want to hear, I want you to tell us about that in a, in a second. Um, so before we like get to like what you're super excited about right now and like including your show, I would say right now this year, yeah. um, uh, last year it's 2020. Um, the podcast is called artifice yeah. because I have like a belief that we all have like an inner and an outer, even if it's very transparent, like, and I also think like sometimes this, like, um, like, how do I want to say it? What I think of is like the artifice of what we do is sometimes just in the perception of the people looking, like I was saying before, like, you know, I can tell you who I am and I can be totally honest about it. And like, whether you believe or like perceive that also is kind of like, so I, I, I'm curious about the experience of an artist versus like how either, either, or how you, put your art like in a physical space. Um, so like, is there any sort of distance between like who I am and what I am doing or like, um, between like who I am and what I'm doing and how people see it. And <sighs> I know you have thoughts about those things. So, so um, oof, yeah, goodness. if you, and like, I love talking about like masking, like, so I'd love to know just in terms of like identity and this question of like, what is felt, what is seen, what's true, what's perceived. It's Holy so cow. much. I know it's a lot. What do you want to say? So this is, this is, this is the story. Um, as a clown, there is, it's all about the mask. Yeah. That's the work, uh, the real work. And there's, there's been a whole, there's a lot of clown theory out there. I have my own opinions and other people have their own opinions and we all talk about different things and resonate with different things. I believe that clowning is an art of the heart, which means that the ego isn't involved. Mm. So whenever I put on my clown face, my white face, I see it as the death of the ego. Because yeah. when we die, we pale out. Mm. So the white face for me is symbolic of death. So whenever I'm in clown, yeah. I am dead. You're not you. I am yeah. not me. Cool. Um, I am a, a concept that I've adopted from 
Tantra actually is the uh, concept of hollow bone. Okay. So what that means is that I am a vessel or a conduit yeah, for conduit, universal yeah. messaging. So after I die, I become a mess a messenger for the universe. So that's where, and it starts from the developing of the costume for the event. So let's say like I'm doing an old folks home or I'm doing a hospital or I'm doing a children's event or I'm doing a bar gig, whatever I'm doing, I cater my costuming to that particular event. And it starts by assuming the idea of hollow bone early on in picking my shoes, my collar, my ruffles, my leotard, my hair, my hat, my nose, my whatever. And that's all like channeled into that. Now that's the clown. Yeah. And my clowns are all very, very raw and innocent and tailored and true and probably the most honest and real of anything I do. Wow. I love being a clown so much because it's just so fun. Yeah. And I don't feel like I'm prostituting in any way, shape totally. or form. Even if I'm taking my clothes off, I don't feel like I'm prostituting. I feel like it's just a really boiled down yeah. piece of not necessarily me, but of whatever needs to be channeled for the room at the time. I love that idea so much. That's perfectly in line with this question of artifice. It's not that like what you're doing is artificial. Mm. It's that like this experience is like subject to like the experience of art, making it, seeing it, doing it. It is subject to the room perception, the people. And it's I different love every this time. idea that like, I mean, you use the word honest, like your clowns are honest, very, but they're not you. Oh, and that's just like, I mean, isn't that bizarre? <laughs> I love it. Like I talk about authenticity a lot, and now like it's such a bizarre concept because like, what if there is like a fixed authenticity? That just means you're not capable of change. Yeah, and, like I know that's not what people mean, but like especially as we're talking about art if you're creating something new how could it be authentic it's brand new you know like you have to assimilate it and I feel like I mean I don't know much about clowning but I have listened to like some clowns talk about what they do and I find it to be such a beautiful illustration of this concept that I'm obsessed with that I named my podcast after um I told I, I realized I interrupted you no 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 it's that's exactly right is it's I think that's why my house is covered in them. I think that's why I, yeah. I, people, when they think of me, they think of a clown. Yeah, they think of burlesque, but usually yeah, the clown is always the first thing that they're, oh, you need a clown, Madison. Yeah. Oh, you need a burlesque clown, Madison. Yeah. Oh, you know, like even this Halloween, I got asked to feature out in Colorado for this major burlesque show. And the producer was like, please bring your clowns. Whatever, yeah. Just bring your clowns. I want to see your clowns. Um, just because clowns are fascinating, they're misunderstood. And if yeah. you do clowning, I don't want to say right, but if you do clowning in a way that is, I feel like if you do clowning as an art form and you're aware of the historical implications and the social expectations, you're aware of everything and yet you subvert it and make it your own, but yeah. still bleed into history. Yeah. That it can read right. Because yeah. I, I have a bunch of horror clowns, scary clowns yeah. that are really dear friends of mine. 
Um, and I'm not here to invalidate horror clowning in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. It has a place. It has a space. It's necessary as well. But, um, but I feel like the majority of the populace doesn't understand clowning. Yeah. And I feel like we're uh, the ones working in the art form are responsible for reteaching. Yeah. Um, and right now, at this period of human history, clowning is coming back really strong for a reason. Yeah. Well, yeah. Just tell me. I think I maybe have an idea what you mean, but let's hear it. They, um, again, it's not about you, you, uh, at least when the, the way I clown, it's never about me. It's about joy and it's about connection and it's yeah. about empathy and it's about mirroring those pieces of ourselves that we've lost because yeah. clowns are innocence, right? They're not, they're yeah. not maniacal, devilish, diabolical. They are a reflection of those brave, like, I don't want to say in it, it really is inviolable. Like you can't violate these pieces of humanity. Yeah. And I feel like the clown holds on to that. Yeah. You can't violate my innocence. Yeah. It's still there. You can't violate my hope. Right. It's still there. You can't violate my love. Yeah. It's still there. I, I have enough strength in myself that I can like reach out and make you laugh. You can't take away my laughter. Yeah. That's an inherent <laughs> human right. Um, clowns are also like social justice warriors. Yeah. Um, they're activists. They want to help people. They want to spread joy. And it's all about connection. And our and our timing. <coughs> what you were saying before, like, they're coming back for a reason. <coughs> you just mean, like, there's we need humanity. We need <laughs> like, clowns. We need to be in touch with that. We need clowns. Yeah. We need to be in touch with our innocence again. Yeah. That kind of, like, deep, like, deep humanity. So I love I love these, like, theories and concepts of, like, clowning what it's for why it matters what does it mean to <coughs> your identity that like the art that you do kind of is stripped of your identity it's so interesting um because it's personal and impersonal at the same time yeah kind of like me as a non-binary person i'm female but i'm not I'm male but i'm not i'm you know how is, how do you explain what it's like? You, you borrow pieces of other people to relate messages yeah. that you necessarily don't necessarily fully comprehend and it makes you a deeper person. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I kind of touched on this earlier with burlesque. There's a lot of burlesque that is prostitution for me. You are, I put on corsets, garters, bras, face, hair, and do the thing where I'm a pretty girl taking my clothes off to pretty music. Yeah. Uh, that's prostitution. Yeah. That's not necessarily who I am. That's ne not necessarily the message that I want to spread. But what is happening during those moments is the burly, like the burlesque gospel is getting spread during those moments. Sure. And the expectation is being fulfilled. Um, and the prohibition isn't necessarily the space for subversion in the way that I would like it to be. Yeah. But it is doing it's the like job a, that needs to be done. Yeah. So as much as I am prostituting myself, there's, there is work being done there. That's very important. Yeah. Um, that, but the other side of it is like with my playwriting, with my one person shows, with the shows that I curate, um, outside of the prohibition where it has a very distinct business model with a very distinct goal in mind with very specific rules, regulations, and a specific populace. Um, 
outside of that where I can be truly subversive. That's where the prostitution ends. That's where I can be radical. I can say anything I want to say. I can do anything I want to do. And I can actually start addressing the concepts that I want to address. Same thing with academia in academic institutions. Um, not as a professor, because I'm not a professor, yeah. but as a performer, as a guest lecturer, yeah. as someone who comes in to right. speak, I have a different level of freedom and autonomy. So I used to right. think that I want my I wanted my master's degree to lead me into professorship. I don't want that anymore. Yeah. That would take away my freedom because totally. I think be thinking about tenure. I didn't realize that until I was one. Yep. That's what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Like I just was ignorant. Like I thought that being a professor would have this like idea sharing like and it I mean in my experience not so now I was at BYU so that's a different environment but but it's but I totally agree with you there's rules yeah and so for me I'm a rule breaker yeah I shatter these rules and I I have to realize that I've realized that my classrooms are anywhere but in an institution anywhere but in a box this is my classroom today yeah a stage is my classroom tomorrow right a restaurant is my classroom right a hospital is my classroom, uh, traveling, speaking, Facebook, all of these things are my classrooms now. Um, but yeah, so prostitution in the prohibition is definitely a thing. I'm not ashamed of it anymore because it helps me pay my bills and it is doing the job that it needs to do because it's in the like realm of like your goals. Yes. And it's allowing, the Utah population to access burlesque in a safe way yeah. that is non-threatening that makes them appreciate it and see it as art. Yeah. Now, if I were to be, um, if I were to take my like angry non-binary self and put it on the stage and be like, look, I'm a man, look, I'm a blah, blah, blah. And like be overly outspoken and overly like political that would turn a lot of people off. Mm. So, what the prohibition is doing is it's creating a gateway. It's a funnel, a funnel yeah. in where people can experience burlesque and then have that initial moment mm-hmm. of opening mm-hmm. and then go seek out burlesque mm-hmm. in other spaces. And when they seek it out in other spaces, they don't necessarily have the same expectations, but right. they can begin to change their minds. Yeah. And so that's why I kind of feel like the prohibition is opening that door, super necessary not necessarily what I need all the time, yeah. but very important to it's the important story. To the end goal, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jazz is like that too. I mean, yes, it's, yeah. jazz is not as controversial as burlesque or as, or as misunderstood, but misunderstood. It is, and um, we belong together. Jazz yeah. and burlesque have developed together yeah, over, totally. over time. It's that, like vaudeville background. background. Okay. We re- I you, took the history classes too. Yes, I'm yes. With you. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. how important it is yeah. and why it's coming back. Yes, yeah, well, when uh, when the economy goes down, entertainment goes up. Well, and when you said before, like, you know, sometimes people just want to be pretty and they miss the history. Like, I relate to that, too. Like, some people want to be Jessica Rabbit and, like, oh God. you know, ha- have a sequin dress and sing on a piano. And I just feel like, oh, jazz is like, it's this whole thing. It's political. It's, it's this, like whole this whole thing. like freedom thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I totally appreciate that. You should follow. I'm going to shout out this per, this collective. Uh, Boom Bap Bam. I, is lo- a, I, I just followed it good. Like, this week. Because uh, I, I am. You posted it. Yes. Because yeah. I emceed for their inaugural event and they're about jazz. Cool. Being this social political force alongside cool. burlesque. And they want to keep doing these kinds Great. of things. That's awesome. So yeah. what you're saying is exactly where yeah. all of these Utahns are at. I have to imagine so many art forms are, have the same kinds of stories, which mm-hmm. is why I want to talk to as many types of artists as possible. Um, okay, I think it, 
we, you know, normally I spend a lot more time talking about this artifice thing with people, but we've been talking about it the whole time. Um, we just haven't been like exactly saying it. So I think maybe let's end with like, please tell us about your one woman show or like, I mean, you can, you have several or I, so I know about the interesting, it's an interesting thing. Um, artistry is wild. Yeah. Yes. It is a wild, untamable fire. And we like to think we can control it, but we can't. Yeah. Um, and it's hard for me because I understand the dangers that we exist in here in the state of Utah. So I'm always an advocate for safety. And people think that me being an advocate for safety means I'm an advocate of control. Not yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I am the least about control, but I am about the continuation of the work. Yeah. Which means that we have to abide by the law. Yeah. So... With my one woman show, I it was supposed to be my uh, the culmination of my masters. Yeah, but me being the person that I am, I was traveling, I was working, I was doing, I was in school, blah blah blah. I didn't get permission. Okay, <laughs> because that's not how yeah. art works. Art doesn't. Yeah, a painting doesn't ask doesn't for permission. Right yeah, yeah. <clears throat> a musician doesn't ask for permission. A true artist doesn't ask for permission because the inspiration to do just is there. Right. You don't, you don't ask to be. Yeah. Yeah. You just are. Yeah. And you make a choice to be. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you have to ask. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel that very strongly with academia. I'm like I shouldn't have to ask you whether or not I can do this. I'm going to do this. Yeah. So everything aligned for me to be <coughs> part of the fringe festival. And the Fringe Festival was the only thing, the only place that would allow my show to be the way that it was. Yeah. I made it very clear. There will be full nudity in this show. Yeah. Where can I do this in the state of Utah? Yeah. Fringe Festival. It's unadjudicated. They can't say no. Yeah. If there's room, though, there will be your show. Yeah. Um, so I had some of the highest numbers. Wow. And it was amazing. I made the most money I've ever made. I had to keep calling in and have them add more seats. I know. I tripled I, well, my I was seats. like watching it. I was gigging all weekend out of state, um, but I was watching your posts and just thinking like, yes. Do you want to like tell the listeners just like about the show? Yeah. Uh, the show's title was genitalia. And it was an exploration of everything you thought you knew about gender, sex, and being human. Yeah. Cool. And yeah. it was a good time. It was fully immersive. The audience was half of it. I didn't say anything. It was a clown show but it, it was mostly mime and drag. So I literally said two words throughout the entirety of the show. And that was penis and vagina right at the beginning. Um, <laughs> and then everyone else said the words for me. Everyone else led the show. I wow. just kind of facilitated the space and did some drag and had a recorded monologue that I spoke through a vulva puppet. And cool. it, it was just so crazy and clowny and body and people laughed. They cried. Yeah. I had a standing ovation every show. Yeah. I won, um, most outstanding yeah. one person show in my wow. first fringe festival, the That's biggest amazing. fringe festival Utah has ever had. Wow. The most numbers, the most shows, yeah. the best attended, the most money. This was the most successful fringe show. What did that feel they ever like? Had. Like, 
That must be so like validating. It's the most validating. I didn't yeah. expect it again, but this is not, this is why I didn't ask permission. Cause I knew yeah. uh, intuitively, I'm a very intuitive person. I was like, I have to do this yeah. and you guys aren't going to say yes. And yeah. I'm not here to wait around for some academic yeah. institution okay. to tell me yes, sure. this is not how art works. So um, I'm just going to do it and hope that it'll be okay. Um, so now like I'm still writing and finishing up my thesis. I thought it had, I had it all done. I walked, but they're still just like having me edit it because it's too much of a story. Uh, yeah. So I'm still working on my paper because it's not academic enough yeah. for them and it's fine. Yeah. I'll be fine. Um, but again, it's just one of those things where it's just like, I'm not here to be what they want me to be. Yeah. Just not. Yeah. Um, never will be. Yeah. Um, but I will get that degree and I already walked and it's already there. I've already been validated in so many ways. I have this, uh, there's a film professor out in Iowa. He came two years ago to start a, uh, documentary about burlesque in Utah. He calls, wow. he's calling it burlesque in the beehive. Cool. He came back, uh, New Year's Eve to finish up the story. Wow. And I covered my story, my struggle, my battle with Utah and where burlesque is going and what it's been and like where we're at as a state and what I would like to see for the future. And it's just very validating to know that there's going to be a feature length film about burlesque in Utah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's important. It's very important. Cool. And that it's done through an academic institution yeah. out in Iowa. And yeah. he just has roots here because he went to school here cool. for film. And then it's uh yeah. So my one person show, incredible the most validation. I had so many newspapers cover it. Yeah. I got so many opportunities yeah. to work with film crews and newspapers and more interviews, more podcasts, yeah. more uh, theater people reaching out to me to collaborate. I wow. opened for film festivals as a burlesque performer. Amazing. There's just been like unimpeded access to people I never had access to. Um, and it's just... I keep getting more and more opportunities to be in the school that's, system as a burlesque performer. So, so I'm not cool. a professor yeah. and that's what I initially thought I wanted to be, but I'm breaking all of the rules with this degree. And you're still doing the thing I'm that still you doing do. the thing that I want to do. That's so great. Yes. I'm, I'm so like excited for you. I'm very excited. It's just like my master's taught me how to believe in myself and how to create work without permission yeah. and how to Isn't analyze that, it as an academic without being trapped in academia because yeah. I, I quit that life a yeah. long time ago. And how to create uh, work yeah. without permission is like the artist creed. Yep. Yeah. I don't Sorry, have to. I interrupted I, I, you. No, no. I just, I, I don't like, have I like to how have, you put that. Yeah. yeah. I don't have to have your permission. And, but then that goes as well with validation. Yes, it's nice to have validation, but does the validation mean my work is any more valid than it was without it? Of no. course not. Yeah. That so, is a difficult thing to remember though. Yeah. And remembering yeah. that has been huge for me because like, I love having success and it has inspired me to create more work. So I'm currently working on two fringe shows, working on a film project, just closed on a film project, have that documentary occurring, working uh, with the vagina monologues, monologues at Westminster, and they're having me do burlesque in the vagina monologues wow. this year. Yeah. And just having more and more opportunities to fundraise for uh, like the sociology department. I've been on sex worker panels. I work with a lot of activists cool. and it's just like the work is happening. And I, I'm, the most stable I've ever been. I don't have anxiety yeah. about my, my life. I don't have any anxiety about my career. I don't yeah. have anxiety about my 401k. Yeah. I'm not concerned. I'm not controlled. I'm very happy. And, um, it's just, 
but I have to remember like success is, is more than money in the pocket. It's very important to have money in your pocket, but success is what's, what's being left behind for others to find, to, to find their success in as a teacher. I always wanted to make the world better. Yeah. That's what we do. We, mm-hmm. we don't get we, we don't ever start educating because That's, we want the world to be worse. Right. We want to change people's lives. Yeah. And so as a burlesque performer, I want to change the world of burlesque for Utah. And yeah. I couldn't do that without Miss Brawling Beauty and the people who came before me or the prohibition or all of the yeah. other people that are involved. Um but that's the goal. Yeah. And it's what's I'm, happening. I'm excited to see what you do. Um <clears throat> I always ask everybody at the end. What's your dream collaboration Ah, on this day? Oh, man. It's already happening. Or you can say your dream project. It's already happening. Um, can you give me like a farther away one that's not happening? Yeah. Um, What's the dream? I'll What's give you dream? a lot. There's a lot. Okay. The dream is this. The dream is to have a queer theater run by queers full of drag, burlesque, fringe, and sideshow, wherein we dictate how it's run, what it looks like, wow. and it's fully sustainable. We have shows all the time, but it's a queer space. Is that happening? Is that We're like, working on it. We're oh, talking that's about so it. great. We want that. That's far off into the future, but in the meantime, the dream. collaborations, like I want to work with Sackerson. I love that theater collective. I want to keep working in the fringe. I want to keep making work. I want to keep finding spaces for work. Yeah. Um, I keep wanting to do original radical theater. Yeah. Great. Um, where can people find you? They can find me. If you type in Madison can, can you will, I, there's only one of me. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Madison can, 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 can have a hyphen. It does have a hyphen and, I'll just pop up or at my website, www.madisoncancan.com. No hyphens in the website. And yeah, it's easy. It's very easy to find me. I'm everywhere. Or you could type in Utah burlesque blue laws and I will be the first name to come up. Seriously. Thank you so much. I have been looking forward to meeting and talking with you for such a long time. And it's just, I'm so glad you're here and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our music is by Jerem Hansen and artwork by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.